Welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam and I am joined as always by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, apparently, according to Chris, the podcast stops at midnight instead of the war starting at midnight. That's <laughs> <laughs> a nice tie into our first discussion, actually. Yeah, uh, Chris, any news with you before we get cracking? No, not really. I was trying to think if there's a theme this week. I can just say that we're now getting into the uh, phase of life where we're scouring other people's neighborhoods to find what neighborhoods have the best Christmas lights so we can drive around and oh, yeah. um, try to not seem like a creeper. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, um, that, that, that must just be like a worldwide phenomenon where it's just, let's just drive around and see who has the nicest house with all the Christmas <laughs> lights, pretty much. We do that in Ireland here as well. Yeah. There's always like it's one weird. house in town that every year everyone goes to look at their house because they just have all the crazy shit outside. Yeah. But you have exactly. to understand, I'm from the South, so you guys take your Christmas lights down? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's this talk about different Christmas lights? Um, that's funny. No, but I pretty much pretty much is ready to talk about these. I, I'm a little bit nervous to hear y'all's reaction to, to my, uh, my take on Colonel Blimp because I think it's going to open up a, a can of worms so i'll just leave that hanging out there but let's 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 jump in i'm excited okay well we'll see how it goes uh yeah well cut out of the bag first film we're going to talk about is the life and death of colonel blimp 1943 picture by the dynamic director duo uh, michael powell and emmerich pressburger uh, just to give you a really brief synopsis from imdb uh, from the Boer War through World War II, a soldier rises through the ranks in the British military. IMDb is so weird with some of these descriptions. You know, sometimes they're really good. Other times they're like super long. And then, but this is just, it's just a bit basic. Yeah, I suppose it is essentially this. So we, we follow this character who is not called Colonel Blimp. Uh, no character, in fact, is called Colonel Blimp in this film. Uh, but we follow this uh, character through three definitive stages in his life as a young soldier a sort of you know in the trenches of war soldier and then like a sort of a retiree um just following through different stages of his life as he comes to terms with you know what it's you know what it's like to be a military man and all that all that all that all that nice good stuff um first off the bat uh chris what's the what's the consensus regarding um our friends at they shoot pictures uh, number 200 okay that's high yeah yeah pretty high. Very, very very high i was i was surprised to see that um i probably like the film the least out of the group so i don't want to spoil too much about what i'm going to say well but I was, don't don't speak too soon perhaps <laughs> okay 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 good well we'll see then but yeah 200 felt very high for me now i'm curious i know there's a thing we've talked about i think you brought it up chris that this was con- like as a consensus best british film of all time i'm guessing that's not the case on they shoot pictures would be my random guess because i'm sure lawrence of arabia that's that's a british film right david lean yeah it's david lean so yeah i'd go yeah. to the british i mean i, I assume yeah. there's quite a bit on they shoot pictures higher so there are so the right ahead of it um yeah i don't want to spend too much time but just just at a quick glance there's one two three four five films ahead of it before we even get to number 150. Okay. Yeah, I think that was, actually, I meant to track down the source of that. 
but on, on one of the Wikipedia descriptions or somewhere it talks about this was regarded as one of the greatest British films of it's all probably time. Probably just one one newspaper said it. Was it the, the the Atlantic? I think I found it too. Was it the Atlantic? Okay, I, I don't actually know. So that I'm yeah. glad you found it. Yeah, um, the Atlantic yeah. isn't that an American newspaper? It I is. believe so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Bold play. None, none <laughs> of us want. None of us read the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's just. I think it's just one of those things where a newspaper will say it, and it will. It's it's one of those things that you put on like the DVD cover. You know, exactly. every DVD cover just has a blanket statement from some random publication. Uh, it's definitely not the best British film I've ever seen. It's not even the best film from Powell and Pressburger that I've seen. So, um, well, look, uh, I'll, I'll start off then, I suppose. I have a very difficult relationship with the life and death of Colonel Powell because I very much love, or Colonel Blimp, sorry, because um, I very much love Powell and Pressburger. Uh, the Red Shoes in particular, in my opinion, is one of the greatest films of all time. Black Narcissus is also fantastic, if maybe a little problematic by today's standards in terms of its de- de- depiction of Indian people. Um, but Life and Death of Colonel Blimp. It's an immaculately well-made film it, in terms of its set design, its costuming, its, its makeup, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It's, its makeup is incredible. Um, and then just it's it's a Powell and Pressburger, so it just looks gorgeous in terms of color and scope and everything like that. I just have a problem with films that fetishize the British military, and this definitely does do that. So I I, I have trouble liking a film that does that just because of you know, as you can tell by my accent, I'm from Ireland, diddly d. So anything that fetishes the British military just rubs me the wrong way. It just it just it's just natural um but in terms of like purely cinematic it's it's a great it's a great film in terms of how it's made and everything like that it's just i I have problem with the content i i did because i I, it's definitely like extremely pro-british i I don't think there's any way to deny that but i do think it feels like it has sort of a i don't know if the word cynical would be right a cynical view of like the bureaucracy of war like how traditionalized it is and how much of a formality it is like we'll get into it like when we get into like the duel and stuff but it's just so standardized to the point that it's ridiculous mm-hmm. and i didn't know i i kind of got I, I like i said there's no way to deny it's pro-british um but i do think there is i don't know if you'd call it satire or cynicism but i did feel a little bit of that in there i'm over you Kurt. thinking a little bit sorry for the delay there i was trying to think a little bit about what zach just said i um i I want to talk about that more in a second zach here's the problem i have with it and see where this goes okay the first let's call it 90 minutes i was totally hooked right it's this very engaging story about this sort of rambunctious young uh kind of rising general and he goes on this mission to germany and he has to think on his feet and it's clever and there's a sword fight and they bo- it's kind of funny because they both get hurt and the way that it plays out I think is entertaining. Uh, there's a love interest and like, I was hooked. Like I thought it was really, it was like an excellent film. And then they did this thing that I just don't like. And so this is kind of just a personal bias. I don't like films that track through the life of a, of a guy or a girl. Like I just, I don't, I don't necessarily, like I don't, can't think of a film that I love that does that. Um, 
And the first thing that comes to mind is like maybe The Godfather. They kind of do that over over three movies in a way. So I don't know. That's maybe uh, hurts my argument a little bit. But like outside of that, I just don't know that I've ever seen a movie that I love where it's just about, you know, like let's follow this one person kind of through their life. Like it's even something I struggle with in Cinema Paradiso a little bit as much as I know that film's beloved. It kind of just a little bit boring to me. Like I want to see, like I want to see like a, you know, like the story of this young guy that was coming up in the military, had a love interest. That's a 90 minute story. It's interesting. Maybe there's a way you can kind of do something that adds some stakes to make that a two hour movie. Like if it ends there, I'm totally hooked. But I just, as it went on and they did aging makeup, which by the way, the aging makeup was great. It was, it was quite amazing, but I just cared less and less. And by the end, I was pretty bored. And so, I think this 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 era of filmmaking tended to do those kind of films a lot. Those sort of life in a movie kind of films. Like when I watched this, like it even had that kind of style to it. And I don't know if maybe this is not going to track with with you Americans and American listeners, but it just reminded me of the kind of film that your grandfather would watch on a Sunday morning. A lot of times in Ireland, they'll show these kind of films on like a Sunday morning after mass and stuff. And it's okay. just something you'll throw on because it'll be on because it's a long film and there'll be sort of commercial breaks. It will like take up like a three or four hour slot in the afternoon on a Sunday when nothing else is really on. Okay. And it just reminded me of those kind of films, like growing up, like you just on a Sunday, there'd always be these sort of old Hollywood films that always tended to be like in technicolor and they were always about the life of a person and it would just go all the way through their life and everything like that. And it, it was, I think they just made like a lot of these films at this time. Like, I agree with you. I'm not really a big fan of that format in general. I think what made it tolerable for me was the amazing uh, makeup. Um, you know, the fact that they had the same actors the whole way through, which I yeah. honestly, I, I did not realize the guy from the first part was, was playing, I'm going to get the actual character's name, Candy. It's not Colonel Blimp, it's Candy. He, yeah. I didn't realize he was playing him the whole way through. I thought there was two actors. Me too. One, uh, you just blew my mind a little bit. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> one actor the whole way through. I did not realize. I knew I, I could figure out that the guy, it was the same person for the First World War and the Second World War. But I did not yeah. think that the, the first guy was the same person the whole way through. I only realized when I was typing up my review and I went to go look at the cast list so I could get both actors' names. And I was like, wait, it just blew my mind. You know, that, that's the only thing that made the whole aspect of going through a person's life tolerable to me was the, 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 act, the, the, the makeup and the hair and everything like that was just phenomenal. Yeah, you know, I will uh, kind of go back where you were talking about, Chris, where, you know, there's exceptions to it. But every exception I can think of or end up being gangster films. Like, you know, you look at The Irishman or um, The Godfather or you know, even like Scarface to a point, although that one's kind of short-lived, but, you know, this whole idea of rise to power kind of makes sense over a long period of time where he kind of gets okay. lost in these type of mill. That, like, that's the way I kind of feel about it. Cause I, I don't disagree with you. I'm way more interested in the first part of the film versus the second and third act. That's actually a great nuance. When the aging serves a great purpose in the film, like, like a rise to power, then it's it's good because it's sort of like that's the reason why you're watching this aging right is you're seeing like there's a great example this is going to be a really obscure film did y'all ever see this old movie called blood in blood out no but that's a great title <laughs> it's a great 
it's it's about kind of like Mexican um, uh, crime, like gangs in in Los Angeles, I believe. But it's sort of a life, and it follows this one guy, it tracks with this one guy, so you kind of rise to power a little bit, and it has a little bit of that. Although, wait, actually, I take it back. I don't know if he ever actually gets to be an old man. It doesn't matter. That's a tangent, anyways. But I liked your point that maybe when it serves the purpose of the story, it doesn't bother me so much. But this one didn't really seem to serve the purpose other than to show maybe like, you know, the world was moving on and here is this guy that was a hero one minute and is kind of forgotten the next. That's kind of one of those, those things that would resonate very well with, with um, uh, what's it called? Veterans of war, right? Like that, that storyline would probably resonate really well with audience that was in war and is maybe now retired or just feels like the world is changing and maybe they're, they're no longer heroes like that. That message would probably resonate pretty, pretty strongly with that group. Well, look, it's essentially propaganda, isn't it? Like, mm. you know, this came out in 1943, still the middle of World War II. You know, what better way to sort of get people to rise up is to, you know, put out a film about the past military successes and how even a, maybe a slightly embittered old man can still maybe get behind the military, even if it's kind of, I don't want to say, well, he's just, I don't know. This This is kind of like a weird sort of deviation the way this film goes is normally with these kind of films you know it will all be about the sort of like you said the rise to power the rise to success whereas you know you know candy this character he just seems like a normal just just like a it's just like one one particular soldier he's not particularly successful he doesn't you know go on to have a you know, a, a pivotal moment that shifts the war, like these kind of films would have. They'd always put you with this guy who, you know, whose idea it was to go after a certain strategy. It seems to be a normal guy for the most part, just sort of going through the motions of each war. And I suppose by, by showing him that at the end, even though he's sort of war-torn and everything's kind of been taken from him, he's lost his home, his wife is dead. And even though he's a little bit bitter about how the German tactics are working, he's still... He still wants to fight the good fight, you know? And this is, that that scene annoyed the fucking crap out of me. And you mentioned it earlier, Zach, how, you know, maybe there's kind of like a, a bit of satire to this, but like that one scene takes all of that away. This whole- Yeah, I will say- Britain yeah, wants kind of, to fight the good fight. It's like- Yeah, it does Britain, kill my point a little bit. I would bit, like to point yeah, you to right. every other fucking war you have fought. <laughs> and war, I'm using war as a generous term. Genocide and uh, imperialism is probably a better term here. But um, yeah, this whole fight the good fight shit that that annoyed the crap out of me. And uh, that the film lost any shred of goodwill I had uh, at that stage. The film a little bit reminded me of, and I can't remember if either of y'all seen. I feel like y'all have but Barry Lyndon. Uh, many years mm-hmm. ago, but yes, uh, it's yeah, I've seen it a long time ago. Yeah, that, that whole idea, like, you know, we, we're seeing this, you know, of course there's the dueling aspect, which is, you know, a big part of the first act of this film, and it's a big part of Barry Lyndon. But, yeah, like, yeah. We're, we do follow the progression of, like, this life and everything else. I think the difference from watching it, though, because that was the connection I was making in, like, the first, like Chris said, the first night. I completely agree. Film. I got yeah. I got Lyndon vibes from it as well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think with Lyndon, I think what ends up working better for it, and I think that might be what this film needed, was um, that almost like that bittersweet comedy to it, because like that's kind of how it ends. Like the idea, you kind of get your comeuppance, but you know, it's 
it, it works out in its own way sort of idea. Like, you know, Barry Lyndon is more of a comedy than anything else in a lot of ways. If we're going to, you know, if we switch Kubrick's stuff into like comedies and not. But yeah, I, I feel like that's what I was kind of missing by the end of um, Colonel Blimp, that and, you know, the character Colonel Blimp. But could have <laughs> used his but, death. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I kind of feel, you know, talking, hearing you talk about Adam, I think a little bit of self awareness could have really helped this film by the end. Yeah. So something you said, uh, Adam, got me thinking a little bit. I don't know exactly, or, or maybe just this idea sparked as you were talking, but one of the things we haven't talked about yet is Deborah Kerr, right? Mm. And this was an unanswered question I had when I was going through it. This might be a good form to figure this out. Like I was trying to wrap my minds around why, why would Powell and Pressburger want to make this movie? Now, it could be that it was propaganda. Um, even Kurosawa, have you all seen Kurosawa, uh, Kurosawa's propaganda movie? No, um, I'll, I'll find the name here in just a second, but it's nuts. Like about 45 minutes in or an hour in, there's a chant. Basically, it's like the only good British and Americans are dead British and Americans. It's crazy <laughs> um, uh, for somebody who would later get financing from basically like Americans to finish his career. Um, I don't think that was his view. I'm sure he just got hired on as, you know, to make this film. So, I, you know, maybe maybe Palin Pressburger just got hired on to make this propaganda film. But I don't know if I'm totally satisfied by that explanation because of all the characters that they aged meticulously, they never aged Deborah Kerr, right? They continued to make her character change in a very kind of unique way. Like she was the most interesting part of the story for me, uh, both because I think she, she nailed the scene she was in, but also because I, I don't quite know what they're, why they used her in the way that they did and why, you know, why they chose not to age somebody uh, like the, the first iteration of her. It's because she's awesome. She is awesome. That's fair. Just reuse her. You're like, oh, we need, we need, it's going to be, it's going to be three significant female characters. Who do we got? We have Deborah Kerr. Who else we got? <laughs> we don't have anyone. Okay. Well, let's just make Deborah all three. Fuck it. No, I'm sure they had a much, well, obviously, look, I think the whole idea is that each, each character is some you know plays a significant part in in candy's life obviously he was in love with her before she went off with theo in her first iteration mm -hmm. as edith in the second obviously he goes on to to marry her um yeah she was the the, the nurse that was in the nunnery oh, right. in, uh -huh. and and then obviously she's the she, she's his driver then in the third iteration so i, I don't I, I don't know maybe i'm just maybe i'm just maybe not giving enough credit or maybe i'm not reading into it correctly but I just think it's a, it's it's double edged in a way that you get to work with Deborah Kerr three times. You don't get to waste her because with something like this, you know the way it's written. Obviously, if they didn't recast her, you just you kind of waste her. She's only really in the film for the first thirty minutes, and then she's gone. And you know it's like, what was the point? You know, could have mm -hmm. hired anyone. Um, so by getting to sort of cast her in three significant roles, you get to sort of show this con this sort of continuity between Candy, even though he's getting older, he always still has, you know, this particular woman by his side, even if she is sort of represented by different characters. Um, but also at the same time, you get to work with Deborah Kerr throughout the whole film and have her play different roles and show different ranges. So I think it's a win-win situation for as far as you know, Powell and Pressburger, but I'd, I'd be interested to see if they ever sort of acknowledge a reason behind it in an interview or, or, a, or a biography or anything like that, because I'm sure there's probably a much better explanation than 
why why hire someone else when you can hire Deborah Kerr three times? <laughs> the casting agent just really wanted to take the day off. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> you know what, fuck it. I'm not. I'm I'm done. I'm not casting any more people. Deborah's playing it. She's playing all three. <laughs> Drop the mic. I may have had to like convince the casting agent not to cast her as Candy as well. Like now we can do that. <laughs> we can't get away with that now. I'm sure she'd kill it, but I don't think audiences would like it. So that's not that's the that's the plot to. Uh, have you all seen adaptation? No. Oh, it's been a while, but I have. That you know, Nick Cage has uh, he plays himself and his brother. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's a, his brother is getting famous as a writer. It's kind of a funny. It's a real funny like. Uh, part of the story where his, his brother who he like he's like he plays the character of charlie kaufman who was the name of the writer of the movie yeah and and his brother's name is donald and donald's getting this like notoriety as a, as a screenwriter and one of the first scripts he writes is about uh, three people that are chasing each other in the end they wind up being the same person and that's the twist <laughs> um well it, anyway. not, not to get too far off track on that because i'm just um i'm just sort of looking and realizing it and I'm wondering if this was maybe a happy accident because, you know, as, as you guys know, I watched There Will Be Blood finally for the first time this week. And I was mm-hmm. sort of reading into the background. And Paul Dano was originally hired just to play one of the Sunday brothers. And mm-hmm. then they realized how great he was. So they just cast him as both of them. And like, I'm just wondering if that's literally what happened here. Because this was, not only was this Powell and Pressburger's first major film, I'm pretty sure this was Deborah Kerr's first major film. I'm just looking, I'm just getting her filmography up here. One, two, three, four, five, six. This was like this is only her third year working in film and only her sixth sort of acting role. So maybe I've never heard of any of the films before or any of the directors before this film. So I'm wondering if this maybe was a you know a Paul Dano happy accident where they auditioned her, they realized she was great and said you know maybe let's have this idea of have her play all three characters to get this sort of cool continuity i mean yeah i see that especially like i was gonna say you know during the war you know you might be limited but i guess not so much on women actresses necessarily but i mean when you're dealing with the war i mean you're probably on a limited amount anyway yeah yeah, but well, no, unless we can find, uh, obviously, we're not going to do this now while we're talking because we could be here forever. But um, yeah, I'm going to maybe look a little bit deeper into it to see if it's ever mentioned in a biography or an interview or anything as a reason why um, she was cast in three separate roles. Because it's it's an interesting creative choice you don't often see yeah. from this era of, Holly, of, Holly, of not Hollywood, right. this era of filmmaking. It's an interesting creative choice. And, and I, did en- I did enjoy her her very much throughout the film especially her last yeah. role i liked her last role the best out of the three i think johnny yeah yeah i i, I wanted it to be i, I want and i think it's it's a it's a i'm fine stopping uh because we're not gonna be able to figure it out just by guessing but i want it to be something along the lines of showing you know why showing the extent to, to, to where this guy can't let go like like he's got Cause he, you know, throughout the movie, he talks about himself as like, he, all he knows is the military, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of, that's what defines him. And so some way to kind of illustrate that in his personal life, he really has nothing, like nothing new that he did after essentially, you know, 25 or whatever. He is, it's all, his whole life was just uh, the first woman that he met was Edith in that her name, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, Edith. And then the military. And that's like all he knows. 
uh, maybe as a commentary on, on getting stuck in the past or something, but yeah, I don't know. No, I can see that for sure. Um, you know, that was essentially his first love along with the military. So by having, you know, characters who look just like the woman he first fell in love with as a sort of metaphor for, you know, like I said, not letting go or not moving on from, you know, what he knows, then yeah, it attracts for me. Yeah. I don't have that much else to say about this movie. I didn't love it. I, I love the first 90 minutes, but what are the other interesting tidbits here? What are the other interesting things about the film? Um, I'd like to hear Adam talk about the um, animal heads. I was, I was going to bring that up. Um, the animal oh, yeah. heads, the animal heads for me are the perfect metaphor for British imperialism that I've ever seen in a film. Well, probably completely unintentionally. Um, you know, because obviously back in the 40s, I'm sure they were all hunting all the time, you know, in, in Africa and everything like that. You know, by having candy, you know, go to Africa into these countries that they've taken over and, you know, whatever, and kill the native animals and hang them on his wall as decoration. I just couldn't see any better metaphor for the damage that British imperialism does than, than that. And, you know, Powell and Pressburger probably thought, this is a, this is going to be a very cool transition. Hey, eh? we're going to put the animal heads on. It's going to represent time passing. And, um, <laughs> And I'm thinking, this is disgusting. You know, this is abhorrent. You know, you, you might as well just be putting the heads of Irish and American <laughs> and fuck knows who else, Argentinian, whoever, anyone else is British has fought with over the, de- over the centuries. You might as well be putting their heads on a wall rather than these animal heads. Um, you, yeah, you I was know, disgusted by it. You know, it's interesting. I watched um, uh, The Naked Prey pretty recently. And mm. the interesting thing about that film, I won't go too far off track, but I want to say it's a British film. I want to say um, the guy who made it was, but I'm not going to swear to that. But the whole movie um, has the hero be this guy who basically takes like safari people out. And it, the whole movie has like this really graphic scenes of elephants getting shot repeatedly. Like, and you're like, Jesus Christ. That's like, I guess that was just uh, more okay at one time. <laughs> Oh. Well, to be fair, it was like I don't think I would be extremely shocked to learn that this was, you know, a metaphor for the savageness of British imperialism because it would go against absolutely everything else that the film represents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, like you said, I think it was just it was just a thing at that time. You know, people you know don't have as much love for conservation of wildlife as we do these days. You know, now you're seen as an absolute scumbag if you go out and shoot a, a lion or an elephant. You're you're the scum of the earth. Whereas I think in this time you were kind of, it was, it was something that wealthy people went and did. And it was like a, you know, a, a sign of status or, or class, yeah. um, which doesn't, you know, it's not a great image either. If you're showing your main character as, you know, being in this kind of class, you know, it doesn't really, it's not, it's not really something that the, the well, ordinary working class are going to get behind. If you're in the military. That's true. Yeah. Maybe, huh. maybe that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that scene was disgusting, and I hated every moment of it. And I think it's no no better scene has has displayed the savageness of British imperialism than that scene. All right, so uh, I'm very excited to introduce Jason Oy, uh, one of the founders of Crescendo House. Uh, y'all hear in just a moment uh, his sincerity really shines through. I think I I, I really love this interview. Uh, I feel like. 
Jason is a very uh, kind of authentic person who's doing this for, for uh, its passion project for him. Uh, I think it's interesting that somebody who's had four careers by the time they're 23 uh, has now settled down into publishing physical media, uh, home media. Uh, love that he's doing it uh, on, without you know bias and without trying to sell for him. His release, uh, the first release he did is stunning. So if you get a chance, just go check it out. Um, uh, it's crescendo.house. And it just, I think he's, all the things that the collectors look at for spine numbers and for the, the you know, pay attention to the design on the packaging and special features, everything is there. And it's, it's, a, it's a meticulous release. So uh, very, very excited for this interview and hope he has a tremendous success in, in his label. Yeah. All right. So Jason Oy from Crescendo House, thank you so much for making some time for us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so where, where am I speaking? Where are you today? Where am I speaking to you at today? I am in California, uh, Southern California, about an hour away from LA. Okay. Uh, my childhood bedroom. Nice. Okay, yeah, I'm visiting for a little bit. Okay, cool. And I'm, I'm in Austin, so we're two hours apart here, not, not too far. Sister oh, cities cool. to uh, some, some cities in California, I guess. Cool. Um, so you, so Crescendo House has uh, one release under their under the belt, which is coming out soon. And I know I got the email from y'all. Uh, I was an early pre-order, um, so I'm excited for that. And you have some other titles that you've announced for theatrical as well as um, for home video. Um, just just to give a little bit of a background on Crescendo. So are y'all primarily going to be focusing on theatrical and home video? Are you going to be doing streaming as well? What kind of rights are you getting for these films? So we're picking up, um, we're trying to get full rights when we can. Um, and it's mainly kind of like an insurance thing. We wanna be in control of how we release every movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of times you see, for example, like, and with Labyrinth, I guess it would be a good example. Um, we shared the streaming rights with movie. Um, okay. And so as a result, like we couldn't really test the kind of collapsed window model that we wanted to. Um, but yeah, no, we generally want to be in control of like all the avenues of distribution. That said, we focus on theatrical and home video because those are kind of like uh, the priorities and those are what we know we can do well. Yeah. Um, when it comes to streaming, I feel like, you know, unless you have a huge catalog, you're not really going to make an impact. And I think for us streaming wise, the goal is to, you know, wait until we have a big enough catalog, maybe develop something, but um, probably not more likely we're trying to find good homes for our movies and sub-license the streaming rights out, maybe get an output deal. So yeah, like Labyrinth of Cinema, for example, we think would be great for Criterion, you know, Criterion channel, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Most importantly, we're just trying to find uh, streaming companies that I think would do justice by the film. Cause I think, um, yeah, with streaming, it's yeah. Like this double-edged sword. Right. And I think that not all, it, it's like you're you're buying into this algorithm that tells you which movie you're gonna like the most, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's feeding you kind of the stuff you're comfortable with, and I think you know, like while I've seen my fair share of comfort films as well, and um, I am also prone to binging stuff. I think sometimes movies need to you know challenge you and take you out of that yeah. comfort zone to really like share experiences and stuff. So, yeah. We have a four-year-old and we all share the same Netflix account. And I can confirm that the algorithm has no idea what to tell us. <laughs> we do it every day. It's totally different. Um, okay, yeah. Uh, no, I, I totally understand. And actually, I don't, I forget if it was in the earlier Reddit AMA or if it was in a separate interview I read, but you specifically, one of the goals of Crescendo 
is to get people into theaters, seeing these films that deserve to be seen in theaters, right? That's like a very, that's like a stated goal, right? Yeah, because I think, so I guess like while I was researching for this, for the company, um, there are a lot of like alarming statistics when it comes to theatrical like uh, audiences, like demographics. Okay. And I think it was something like the 2019 Art House Convergence, like they do like data sets uh, for Art House theaters. Okay. And it was something like of, you know, 500 theaters polled, uh, 70% of audiences were over the age of 65 and 6% were under the age of 35. And I was like, that's why I don't have any friends my age, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, and it was like, oh, 99.9% .9 of people are, you know, like white European. And I'm like, but these are like Asian movies. Like these are like, you know, like European, like, or like, uh, these are like Latino movies. Like why aren't those audiences being represented? And I think ultimately I attribute it to like a lack of uh, awareness, right? Um, a lot of these movies, unless you're looking for them, you don't really know they exist. And I think the easiest way to kind of like put these movies out there, at least like to go, uh, go back to like when we were like growing up, right? Uh, the fastest way to like learn about a new director, a new filmmaker was you'd go to the theater to watch something else and then you'd see a trailer for it or you'd see uh -huh. like a poster for it, right? And so yeah, like the goal is to kind of, um, yeah, put these movies out in the theatrical space, use home video as a means to that end. Because I think traditionally the windowing process for these kind of movies, you see this release schedule that where, um, you know, the theatrical release happens first and it's LA and New York. And it never really does that well because it's only two theaters. And because, right. you know, profit margin wise, you're not gonna spend that much on marketing for those two theaters. And I think like Kyle is, under the impression that a lot of these distribution companies kind of viewed that initial limited theatrical release as a marketing kind of uh, publicity thing for the home video release. And so for me, it makes more mm -hmm. sense to get rid of that geographical accessibility like clause, like the whole um, idea that, you know, growing up on the outskirts of LA where it would take me an hour to get to some of these theaters, I would always feel jealous about the people that would drive 10 minutes, mm -hmm. right? Didn't have to go mm -hmm. through traffic. Um, and yeah, like wanting to sell to the people that know about the director, know they're gonna love the movie, kind of uh, let them be passionate about it and create the buzz. And as a result, you know, like get the theatrical out because those people like, they're gonna also be able to appreciate it in a theatrical setting. I think with Labyrinth, if you watch the movie like on movie streaming, like you're probably gonna also wanna watch it in theaters, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, use the theatrical release as a centerpiece instead of as an introduction um, so that, yeah, people kind of, and yeah, like prove to exhibitors that there are people willing to, you know, buy tickets for these kinds of things. Um, because I think ultimately it just comes down to like so many of these movies don't get theatrical releases. They only play in, you know, the festival circuit. If you miss it there, uh, you get to see it if you're in LA and New York. If you miss it there, like you're waiting for home video. And right. yeah, why not? have the theatrical be the, the centerpiece? Why not have people be able to experience it the way it was intended to by the directors, I guess. And, and there's a more macroeconomic issue going on behind what you're saying in that people are not necessarily, like film people are not necessarily centered in LA and New York anymore because it's expensive to live in those cities. So they might actually be living in different places now. They may be living in like Omaha, Nebraska or you know whatever, Chicago, Austin, where I'm like, you don't know that necessarily, but as you start getting, like I saw the R playing in Dallas, most people don't know this about uh, with Labyrinth. Most people don't know this about Dallas. Dallas has a huge film community for, for Indian and art house. I was I went to school there in 2000 to 2005. And in those years, I mean, university there. And in those years, they had the most 
art house screens per capita in the country. I didn't know that either. I, I always found it surprised, like with our theatrical run for Labyrinth, we got a uh, 16 or 15 cities now. But it's funny how we got two in Vancouver before one in Toronto, for example. Oh, yeah. Um, we got Tulsa, Oregon before we got like Miami or like Boston, right? Like Wisconsin before, you know, like yeah. Chicago. We got Chicago now, but there was a point. And yeah, it was like, I think there's a lot more flexibility with exhibitors now too, with theatrical settings. Um, we're seeing a lot more like three-day kind of like special event screenings, you know, one screening yeah. every week, uh, every day of the weekend rather than like a full week run per se. But um, yeah, I think there are populations in America that aren't being tapped into that have the potential to sell out these like, you know, these theaters that have the potential to like, yeah, prove the exhibitors that there is an audience for subtitles and there's an audience for longer movies if they're the right longer movies, mm -hmm. you know? And so, people yeah. they want to see a film, a follow-up film from the director of House Suit if they haven't seen anything else by that guy, because who wouldn't want to see something else but this guy? Yeah, he made 60-something movies in his career and only right. one ever got picked up for U.S. distribution. Yeah. Um, that has since changed. Kim Stim got the uh, his War Trilogy and we're doing Labyrinth. But it's like, yeah, for the longest time, Obayashi was like this really great director. It's like, oh yeah, what did he do? House. Right. <laughs> and it's like, he has a huge catalog of things that all kind of live up to that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And some of them that are even, you know, like more uh, in depth and personal and intimate and weird even um and it was just like, such a shame to see these like disappear it's like saying david lynch did dune or something right you're like that's true but there's a lot more to david lynch <laughs> yeah yeah um, he did that uh he, he did dune and he did that eraser movie that looked weird so i didn't go see it <laughs> exactly yeah um so okay specifically on home video you have also stated that you're gonna focus on steelbooks is that right yeah, yeah, I think we might, we're actually working on like a proprietary system right now just to see if we can change it up a little bit. Because right. I think the problem with our Steelbook release was that um, we had to do a minimum order quantity of like 4,000 and that was like a really high number, um, especially for like a starting out company, right? Like a company just starting. Uh -huh. And especially for some of these movies that we're putting out uh, in the future. So um, the other two directors that we have films of in our catalog have never been distributed in America before, uh, I think apart from streaming. Uh, so we have Julian Rademeyer, uh, his second movie. Uh, we picked up his first one along to go with it. Uh, and we have Zhang Lu, who's also been working in the industry for decades. He's mm -hmm. been basically like confined to the festival circuit, right? And he's like the only, I think, trilingual director I can really think of off the top of my head. Um, his movies are about like Chinese, Korean tourists, Chinese and Korean tourists in Japan usually. Wow. Um, and he himself is a Chinese Korean director. Um, wow. but yeah, like I think for those movies, we don't want to put too much pressure on them. And we also do want to continue to like, you know, innovate. And there are these massive supply chain shortages. We mm -hmm. have had these delays with our release. Um, and it's literally just a matter of like, yo, I've called, I've spent too much time on the phone with FedEx trying to like find lost packages and stuff. Mm. But yeah, like uh, the supply chain and like getting everything together for this release. Um, too many moving parts and part of me um, thinks that if this like new system works really well, if it, if it looks good and if it, you know, is more sustainable then and it lets us, you know, if it lets us to lower order quantities and make it more limited, um, I think that would be good. But yeah, we're still thinking on that. Well, I hope that's, I mean, there's, innovation is always fun, right? And I think that there's a, there's a thirst for, so um, one of the companies that comes to mind is Cauldron Films. 
the the guy that you know has diabolic DVD broke off. Jesse, I love yeah. that guy. Yeah. So he did something kind of cool, which is that he put out a limited slip cover, right? And then he put out like a VHS packaging and, and then he put out a standard release. So there's like variation even within the titles, right? Um, and, and different companies like Vinegar Syndrome is trying that archive line where they slip down from the bottom. And you see, like my point is like, you see these different styles of innovation. And I think, I don't know if you experienced this, you mentioned that you're active on Boutique Blu-ray, at least as a, uh, a lurker. Um, and and so you probably see this as well, but like I, I've been collecting since 2001, give or take 2000, 2001. So I saw that first wave when limited editions were like 50,000. Then it kind of died down a little bit and then it, it's picking back up again to where 4,000 might not actually be that high. I mean, once word starts getting out about a brand and people want to see stuff from Crescendo House, like 4,000 might actually sell out, right? Uh, I feel like yeah. that's kind of on the upswing again, I guess. And I think that was the goal initially. Um... The reason we put home video first, one of the other reasons is that we started out with like no money. Mm -hmm. And so we straight up did this with, I think 20 grand in the bank uh, to begin with. And we got all the titles and we like did all the manufacturer home video stuff. And for us at that point in time, it was like, oh, we'll let the interest drive the marketing for theatrical, right? Um, say if we sell 2000 copies of the 4,000, um, we're up about 140 grand and that's money that we can then funnel into the marketing for the theatrical release. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And the other thing was like, Oh, and if we sell out, we can prove to exhibitors that, you know, there is so much interest that, you know, like right. more people, but, uh, I think, yeah, we don't need to talk about that too much at this point. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was a means to an end to begin with, but also, yeah, like I've been collecting since I was maybe 13, 14, um, and I would just spend, I would like save up my lunch money and I would go to like Barnes and Noble during the like 50% off sale. And That's awesome. I remember like, yeah, there was like a point in time where I just had no room for books left on my bookshelf. And I was like taking books out and putting like Blu-rays. <laughs> um, That's great. But yeah, I, I, I mostly lurk on those subs nowadays because I don't know, social media has always been kind of intimidating for me. Um, I like talking to people like face to face I like being able to see them and I think there's always that like room for you know miscommunication and that's like a slippery slope and yeah. so yeah I love seeing people with their pickups and stuff and I love seeing like what's coming out in the market I love seeing like all these creative ways that people like photograph their products it's like uh -huh. insane right yeah um well but that, yeah that actually might be a good segue into you because you might be the most interesting man in distribution because you're as opposed to having a career that's just like maybe, you know, starting off in uh, uh, kind of a, a entry level job in Kino and then working your way up to eventually releasing a product. You've actually already had a couple of careers at 23, right? Can you talk just a little bit about like your, your life? And I, I, just, I just think it's interesting for people to know this because you're even uh, streaming on um, uh, as a gamer for a while, right? Oh yeah. Okay. So like, yeah, it was never like full careers. So I always feel like a little bit like, like an asterisk on that. Um, I just have a very, like, I guess I wouldn't say short attention span, but <laughs> okay. like, I don't know. I, I feel like, yeah, I, I love working in film and I love that my hobby is like also my profession. And um, sometimes I get like idle hands and I just want to like try things. Right. Uh, I like, yeah. Like challenging myself to like try new things. So yeah, like when I first started out, this was even before I got into movies, I was really into video games because mm -hmm. what kid isn't? Right, um, amazing, right. Yeah, and I have like a very obsessive personality, I guess. 
Uh-huh. So I would spend way too much time on that. And then um, I remember like I was getting too toxic, man, because I was playing these like team-based games and I was like yelling at teammates and I was like, I'm not that kind of guy. <laughs> I don't want to be that kind of person. Okay. So I like, I don't know. I, I remember, I think it was like Reservoir Dogs was like my awakening. It was just like <laughs> ironic, but okay. I remember watching like somebody recommended that to me I watched it and then every day for like the next like six years I like made it a point to watch something as soon as I got home from school wow. and then there were like three years in which I was watching three movies a day um oh, wow. yeah so there was like that going on um I grew up in a city where it was like yeah we have like you know uh one of the most uh I would say well-regarded like public high schools in America okay uh and so you have to like test in and everything there was even like a book written about my high school about like how oh yes I saw fucking 15 year old girls with white hairs from stress right because it was like high pressure kind of like everyone's oh. gonna be a, a lawyer a doctor a programmer they're gonna contribute something to society mm-hmm. and I was like the only person in my class that was like yeah I, I want to watch movies all day <laughs> and talk about like art and my feelings uh-huh. and I felt really alienated, you know, because a lot of people didn't take that kind of stuff seriously. Right. And so I got into criticism because I was always like, I always thought of myself as like a, you know, better than average writer. Um, and I wanted to kind of like write with the perspective of like, I'm trying to convince people to watch these movies that I care about. So I made it like a rule to like, I mostly was able to follow. There were some periods where I had to review like some like lesser known stuff for bigger publications, but um, to write about movies that I really cared about that I didn't think was getting enough attention. Yeah. Um, as well as, yeah, directors that I loved that, you know, people wouldn't otherwise review. Um, so I did a lot of documentaries, did a lot of experimental stuff, a lot of international. Um, yeah, and so that was like to kind of, yeah, figure out um, how I could convince people to watch more movies. I think that's always been like my life goal, like ever <laughs> since I got into film. So like after that, I when I went to college, I did programming for a little bit, uh, mostly freelance, but I ran like a 16 millimeter film club at NYU. I was doing like the projection myself, uh, mm-hmm. handling and restoring like, you know, uh, the reels that we had. Um, and I remember, yeah, like I would program weird, like weird shit and people would call us out for it sometimes. And that ultimately led to us getting canned, uh, like canceled. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not that interesting. I think I'm just like, young and over my head I think for the most part because I think I do kind of oh I I did a I did a film festival as well um when COVID started because I was like applying for jobs left and right and I was like oh the natural progression of like programming is like you know there's a lockdown now so let's do like an online film festival for uh, quarantine it was called the long distance film festival and it started out as like a COVID film fest but um, we got so many admissions because we wanted it to be free and we wanted to see what people were working on. And then we realized that a lot of the kind of like COVID projects weren't going to age very well, but the ones that were good were really good. Ooh. And I'm really proud of that because even though we made like no money, um, we got to screen 50 something movies from 30 countries and we did three blocks of programming and we did it all on Twitch live and our kind of like mentality when we came to like sequencing the films was you know, one, um, it was cool because it was cool to see people that would otherwise have to collaborate and like, you know, maybe compromise their like voice, um, do these like, you know, movies about these things that they were feeling. 
and have it be like 100% them, right? Them writing, editing, directing, you know, doing the DP, DP work. Yeah. But um, yeah, like the other rule that we made was like no two films in a row can be alike. And so it was really cool. We would, we played like, oh, it's like, oh, here's like, you know, your traditional high school, like romance short film. And then here's a dance video and here's an essay film and here's an experimental like flicker uh -huh. film. Okay. And it was so cool seeing the people react to it live in the chat and just like freak out with the movies, you know, like. Super interesting. I've always wondered if there could be a way, I don't want to go too far down this path because this is a different discussion, but I've always wondered if there's a way that Twitch could be used to show behind the scenes of filmmaking. I think people would be interested in seeing like how film was actually made live, you know, even though that sounds boring. Yeah, I think so too. But I think like the big pitfall with that is that, you know, one, it's like how much content you're really going to have to be able to consistently draw in like an audience like that. And two, like, dude, the legal stuff, like, cause we kind of ran like a guerrilla operation, you know, because... Mm -hmm. You know, you use a piece of music in a movie, you got to get insured for it. Mm. And that's like something that I didn't know going into this too, was that like, for example, sometimes you'll buy movies from sales agents um, or like you'll buy these like finished movies from like well-known directors or like you'll look into them and you'll realize that like, oh yeah, some of the rights that they had licensed don't actually apply in your country. Mm. And so like, if you want to, you know, get the rights for that, you got to pay a huge chunk, you know, like they use a Springsteen song, you're fucked. Like... That kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah, like, that was a big problem with the Wonder Years uh, release. That held up the DVD release for like 10 years because nobody would pay the music rights. I just remember that from, from back in the day. Yeah. And I think with Evangelion where they're like, yeah, we're not going to use the Springsteen yeah. track. It's like, wait, that's like iconic. <laughs> right. Um, well, so, so basically, I guess to summarize, you're kind of an entrepreneur at spirit, right? And this, you've always sort of done these entrepreneurial things where you haven't asked for permission. You've kind of just like gone and done them. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, I try to be as careful as I can. Um, I wouldn't really call myself an entrepreneur. Um, I think maybe like if this company does well, uh, but I, yeah, I guess my dad was an entrepreneur. I call him an entrepreneur and I was always afraid of kind of like doing like running a business from scratch just because we had these periods of like economic, you know, instability growing up where it'd be like, Oh yeah, we can live it up lower middle-class. And then all of a sudden we're like, broke broke and then all of a sudden we're back you know yeah um, so I remember always thinking like I would do logistics with him I would do like I'd work at the warehouse with him because he's like a little bit older um so I remember yeah as a kid helping him out and being like holy shit like I never want to do this well, and then like realizing that I had kind of made that promise and I saw like three months into this where I was like oh yeah this is really difficult and this is why and I knew this was coming but I was kind of just like blinded by the excitement of being able to release some of these movies, you know? I mean, that's the appeal of entrepreneurship, right? Is that it's, you, you, you get sucked into the promise of it, right? You get, you get the, the, the dream is alive, right? <laughs> yeah. Gotta um, keep the dream alive, man. But oh my God, like I would be so happy to take orders from people right now, like to just like start the day and have like an agenda and like finish it, you know? And like, move on and have a life outside of work because uh yeah no since we started this company i think we did kind of go into it a bit too like haphazardly um like maybe a little bit too over ambitious but yeah like dude i have not slept more than like four hours a night since this has started like Oof. a year ago almost um yeah. and it's starting to like hit me so I, I don't want to, again, I guess I just, this is just personal for me because I was an entrepreneur from 2011 to 2019. I did my own work. So I can tell you that like, there are things you learn in that process to where it's a little bit easier the second time. Right. Yeah. 
like and the second me wishes that like I could start over from scratch and just like refresh the slate because I I've like learned art the team has learned so much these past few months you know yeah and it's like there's this like this pressure I guess where I don't know because we are releasing like one movie at a time right it's it's again double si- double-edged sword I guess um we have the flexibility to kind of release these movies how we want to and we have that control and I know there's like less pressure on us than there is on like the big company that's expected to make millions in revenue and stuff. But at the same time, like with Labyrinth of Cinema, man, I kept thinking, like I would stay up at night, like thinking like, oh God, if we screw this up, like that's a man's legacy we're fucking up, you know? And like with uh, with Julian's film, um, Bloodsuckers, it's like, yo, that's like his introduction to America. Like we're handling that. And if we fuck it up, like, oh no, like he's going to really have to work hard to like make it up, you know? And so, yeah, I guess like the pressure of dealing with other people's uh, like works of art, like these intimate creations made by these like filmmakers, like, yeah, I know sometimes I'm like, you know, we're not worthy and not worthy, but yeah. yeah. It's the, the, I can tell you there's something you said on the AMA, which really struck me, which is that Obayashi's late, the late Obayashi, his, his living wife met with an uh, interpreter that she already knew and conducted an interview for the release, right? And I guarantee you that that experience for her was uh, something that she probably needed. Like that was probably cathartic for her to talk about her husband and see it through the eyes of like this, with, with all due respect, like this young kid, right? Who's coming over, who's like in awe of Obayashi. And she saw that, she got to see that through that. I can tell you, I'm almost 40 now. I think I would just challenge that perspective just a little bit. And I can say the fact that you're putting this like time and care into it, that is noticed by these filmmakers. Like that's not lost on them. And I don't think that like production delays or like, like slight subtitling issues or whatever, like the, the nuance that matters so much to you because you want to get the release perfect. I think that people that create these things actually see the heart behind it. And I think that matters a lot. Yeah. I, I hope they do. Cause yeah, we're, we're trying our hardest, but yeah, it's like, the public facing side, you know, we can't always kind of like, I don't know, I don't really talk about my age as often because I don't want people thinking like, you know, oh, like we're going to let him off easy because he's younger. I've never wanted to kind of be interpreted as different from like anybody else doing the same thing. Right. And I've never really viewed age as like, like that kind of obstacle, but yeah, no, like that, that interview was, was heartbreaking, man. It's so good. It's, it was like melancholic, I would say, because yeah, yeah it did feel cathartic. Um, like she's like laughing through tears. And I remember this one part she talked, she talks about how like early on in their career, Obayashi asks her like if he if she's gonna be okay dating a starving artist. And she goes, like, I remember what I said. I was like, Oh yeah, if you ever make a boring movie though, it's done, you know? It's like as long <laughs> like, as you keep like the relationships done. Yeah, it's like <laughs> you keep making boring movies, I'm not gonna support you anymore. But as long as you keep doing you, like I'm I'm in your corner. And they, yeah, she produced, like, I think she was, like, a costume designer on the early ones, and she produced all the other ones. And, yeah, I remember, like, Labyrinth of Cinema for us was, we had tried to get, like, three other titles in that time, Um, you know, maybe even, you know, bigger properties in America, but, like, in the end, it was always down to like the producers to make a decision. And it was always like, we're going to take the higher money from like the larger amount of money from the company that has proven that they can do this already. Okay. Right. Which is totally fair because honestly, I wouldn't have trusted myself back then. But I remember like 
emailing them about Labyrinth of Cinema, like only having read the uh, the summary, right? Um, and then watching it and being like, holy shit, like this is everything that I wanted to say in that email that like, like what I wanted to accomplish with this company, like manifested in this vision from this, like, I don't know, I always viewed, I'm like kind of like an optimistic, like pessimist, I guess, I don't know, because I'm aware of all of the facts stating the contrary, but I still want to believe that things can be changed, right? Yeah. And it was crazy because like somebody like Obayashi on his deathbed, like basically directing this movie that he never should have been able to make because he thought the war trilogy would be his last, you know? And being able to do that with the optimism that is present in that movie, man, like with that belief in like future generations, with that belief in us, like it literally opens with like, we're here for world peace, you know, like this movie we're gonna try and go for world peace it's like yo like I, I loved seeing that it was, it was like yeah the same kind of like ambitious uh filmmaking it's weird and it's different but it might just fucking work you know because of that I don't know I want to yeah like it's like yo politicians should watch this shit you know like just you said you said that you give it to him for free right any world leader yeah. that wants to watch it <laughs> yeah it's uh, yeah man oof uh, there was a. I was struck at um, the way you described in uh, that just now. Reminds me of listening to the commentaries. So I've been going through Yodorovsky's films for the first time. I had never seen a lot of the famous films that he he produced. He's and the passionate. Way that, oh my gosh! Yeah. And he's an optimist. Like he's good, <laughs> like his movies are famous for kind of having it's like animal cruelty and like shocking imagery and whatever. But when he's talking, like. He's purposely being provocative, but he's really like focused on the message of these movies. And like, he's trying to change the world. He's trying to get people to like a spiritual transcendence. He's trying to get people to like freedom. Like he's pushing, like, he's really like, he's a, he's a super optimistic, like well-balanced, like in Santa Sangre, the commentary, he's openly talking about, this is the first time he's seen the death of his son. And he's like, I thought this was going to be a much harder experience for me, but this is actually very cathartic. Like he's this open, like emotional person. I was like, man, this is guy, this guy's awesome. <laughs> like I want to support this art, right? Because this guy is like really a positive force. Yeah. Oh my God. I remember I like first week at NYU, I dragged my roommates. They were, uh, I think one of them was like a physics guy. One of them was like, like uh, one of them was a film student and one of them was like a math guy. And I dragged them all to go see like El Topo at midnight. It was like, hey guys, like we're gonna be living together. So like, here's like the kind of stuff I'm into. <laughs> uh -huh. I was like, yeah, here's like a guy with no arms tied to a guy with no legs. Uh -huh. They're one person. <laughs> and uh, I remember they were like, so weirded out for it, you know, starting out. And then they left the theater. They were like, I've never seen anything like that before. I think I liked it. And I was like, yeah, that's what I'm looking for, man. That's the reaction. It's like, you got to think about it a little, you know, you can't just like rush into your feelings. Yeah, yeah no, he's so passionate and his movies are like accessible in that kind of way as well, you know, where I think you kind of see through the passion and you like, like you, you see the passion and you see what they're trying to do. And it makes the stuff that makes you a little bit more uncomfortable, like more, you know, easy to kind of understand. And I think it, it really creates like that sense of empathy, right? I think that's what like these kind of movies are the greatest for, right? So this kind of ties into one of the questions I had as I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you. So uh, it sounds like the way, again, just kind of as I was 
getting to know you through reading about you now I'm actually talking to you but it sounded like you enjoyed experimental filmmaking or films that kind of uh, pushed on the boundaries of, of what of, of the common kind of rhythms of film or the boundaries of film so what is it that draws you to that way of storytelling oh man I think one is just like the sensory inputs okay right there's like a feeling right um I don't know you watch like I don't want to I don't want to talk too much shit on Marvel but like you watch a Marvel movie and like do you ever get goosebumps anymore right? Like yeah, not too yeah. often. No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you watch some of the, like, I remember the one uh, paper I ever got published in academia um, was about like the effects of flicker films, right? It's this like really small subgenre of like structural filmmaking. And it's basically just like binary almost. It's like ones and zeros. It's like the light is on, the projector light is off. Right. So um, like, the most famous ones are by like Paul Sheritz, uh, and it's like, yeah, like a flickering light. You're watching this flickering light for like 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And I remember I was like researching that and just reading about like, you know, these like testimonials of people coming at the screen. They're like, yo, it was like out-of-body experience. Like, you know, some people are like, yo, like it was like, you know, like being on shrooms or something. And I remember thinking like, yo, if a movie, if like the series of images, right? Or like, yeah. you know, light even can like stimulate those parts of your brain and make you feel certain ways, like, you know, like that's something special. Um, and I feel the same way for, yeah, anything that really surprises you, that catches you off guard. Because I don't know, yeah, I, I remember having the realization that my guilty pleasure is um, like sci-fi, right? Okay. Um, and I remember having this realization. So whenever I'm like a little bit bummed, I'll put on like a sci-fi movie and just okay. like feel it, right? And having the, the feeling that, oh man, I've seen about every sci-fi blockbuster that's ever been out, you know? Because okay. there aren't that many. They're expensive to make, right? For sure. And um. Yeah, like just like working through like the various genres like that of like mainstream kind of like uh, filmmaking and running out of content almost and seeing a lot of the same kind of like patterns or trends or like, you know, there's some things I like, some things I don't like, but like being able to kind of like, or like, sorry, uh, unwittingly turning my brain off during some of these movies just mm -hmm. because, you know, I see these like same patterns. And so whenever I do see like a movie that does attempt something different, you know, you got to give it props for that because it'll catch you off guard. It'll like push you awake. And uh, it's like a, a joke in the company that like um, with me and the one other employee that we have of like, you know, the uh -huh. best movies are the ones that have like 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. You know, the best yeah. movies are the ones that like half the people hate, half the people love. Right. 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 Um, because yeah, like I mentioned, I do think movies should, you know, elicit a reaction and I think hate is as strong as a reaction as love and I think like you know there's a reason for all of that and I think the movies that do break these like formulas like do you remember that like vulgar autourism thing how like do you, do you, you heard of that um I don't know by name maybe like what, what's an example of it maybe I know by by some of the like Paul W.S. Anderson oh okay yeah sure 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 how there are like waves of people that will like I don't like that they call it that because it implies that it's like anything but regular tourism. Uh -huh. But like the notion that like, yeah, like here are these movies that everyone kind of, that the mainstream, you know, commercial like has kind of uh, disregarded as like, you know, mindless entertainment. But mm -hmm. then you watch like Resident Evil 5 and that whole movie is like a simulation in a simulation. And it's like, what the fuck, right? Like uh -huh. you could write a 30 page paper on that, like just uh -huh. the things that it brings to mind. And then like you get to like Resident Evil 6 where like there's an edit every other frame in some shots. I think uh, the editor is Doobie White and he has this style where it's like, you know, a lot of the reviews are like, oh, it's incoherent. 
I was like, I didn't think so. I thought it was like kind of refreshing how like they made that work, right? Like, you know how people always make fun of like in Taken 3, how it takes like 70 cuts for him to jump over that fence or something. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And it's like, yeah, and that is like not good because you can't really tell what's happening and you can tell that it's like a waste of space. But when you see that kind of happen, right? In like Resident Evil, the final chapter, right? It's like a shot of a foot in the air, a shot of somebody like going back and a shot of like, of, of somebody like falling backwards and then a shot of like her unholstering a gun. And that's all within like a split millisecond. And it makes sense, you know, it makes sense montage wise. Um, yeah, I love that shit. I love, I love, um, I love when movies try stuff that's different. I love when they experiment. I love when they aren't afraid to take risks, you know? Mm -hmm. And I always wish that sometimes, like, I feel like critics should wait a little bit longer before writing a review, but that's the, the nature of the, the world we live in, you know? I mean, the classic example of that is Night of the Hunter getting panned when it first came out, right? And now you yeah. look at it and you're like, who would ever possibly write a negative review of this movie? It's like incredible on every level. Like what? What was the rationale for that again? It was like... I think it was just different, right? Like yeah. we, we did one of the earlier, we, we spent about 20 minutes trying to figure out that exact question, like why? But I think it was just, we looked at the other films from that year and it was like kind of a time in American film history where it was like bland, star-driven vehicles that were like very predictable and then out of nowhere it was like right after the war so people wanted like good stories and then like out of nowhere comes this dark 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 story and like with shadows and angles and like larger than life perspective and like these crazy things that go on and i think they just maybe maybe it's just a timing issue um because who could possibly watch that and not love it like it's such an amazing anyways <laughs> um so speaking of taking risks, I guess that's might, might be a good segue into one of the questions I had, because I'm curious about something. And maybe this is me reading into something that you had no intention of, but I'm just curious. You talk about reimagining distribution, right? And I love that as an audacious goal. Like I love big goals like that, right? Um, this is another reason I think you have an entrepreneurial spirit, even if you don't like to call it that, because this is what tech startups do. Right. That's been the world. That's the world I come from. They want to change the world somehow. Right. And so you're kind of approaching it in the same way that like if you look at an early deck from PayPal, they didn't talk about like this thing that lets you change. They, they wanted to redefine currency. Right. Like it's these big, like audacious goals. Right. Yeah. Um, so uh, I guess my question is, what are the current distribution houses doing wrong that you think needs to be tweaked? Or am I reading your your, your statement the wrong way? All right, this is, a, this is a tough one, but let me give it a shot. Um, I guess what I'm saying by that, I'm not really saying that like distribution companies are really doing anything wrong per se. I think that there is a kind of, yeah, there is like, a, we're releasing one title right now, right? And I am like so overworked that I am like going crazy. And uh -huh. I could not imagine having the pressure of like putting out 10 titles, you know, like something like that, right? Um, so I think that what we have for now is the kind of flexibility to try something different. And, you know, it was ambitious at first, um, especially, although like, I do feel like maybe a bigger company should try. I think that, you know, some bigger companies are, um, for example, like you look at like Neon and say what you will, they're trying, you know, different release models, right. With like Memoria, like that's kind of a collapsed window, right. Like system. Mm -hmm. Um, or like even just like the day and date trends, right? Like I think that's mm -hmm. probably the biggest shakeup. And mm -hmm. the only reason that that was pushed through was because, you know, the companies had the leverage, right? And yeah. so I think that the problem is that 
none of the big companies that do handle like international distribution, uh, these kind of movies like this um, may or may not, I don't really know, I don't want to speak for them, but have the ability to like take these kinds of risks, whereas we can, you know, because mm -hmm. yeah, we are one title at a time, they have our utmost focus. Um, and so I guess what I was trying to like accomplish with the company is kind of like prove people wrong, um, prove to people that like a different windowing system like home video first, for example, can work. Um, I think the only reason it doesn't work is because people are caught up in the traditions of the system. And for the most part, I think most distributors, yeah, if it made sense, they would do it. Um, it's just a matter of like, there's not enough commitment from all of the industries because for something like what we're trying to accomplish to work on a large scale, you need to have everybody kind of working together, right? You need like the exhibitors to also be down with this. You need the critics to also be willing to adjust how they review movies and like the timelines in which they put them out. Um, so it needs to be like a concentrated effort. And so like, for example, we get some pushback these days, um, like the early on where it was like a lot of theaters, you know, hey, we wanna play the movie, but you know, you already have the home video release. And I'm like, well, what's a, you know, limited edition 4,000 home video copies uh, at the most, right? Maximum versus like say for Black Widow, 45 million streams gone, right? Yeah. Right. It's like, why do you have a problem with the 4,000 home video release? I see. That's priced saying. really high, you know? I see what you're saying. Okay. So when you get deep into the industry, you're saying that there's some fundamental. So if we're, if we're building software, there's this like, concept of technical debt, right? It's hard to build new software because old software was coded in a way that makes it difficult to add on to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I guess what kind of what you're saying is like, you're entering into a system that's well-established and it's hard to adjust and kind of pivot to the, the way that people are consuming movies now. And so you're coming in and saying, hey, there's a better way that's more efficient in getting uh, uh, content out. And in, in, that's why you talk about geography then, because there's these people that want to see it in, in Des Moines or like in like, you know, Boise. And like, they might not get a theatrical release, but they get, they get the option of buying the, the home video. But then for the, for the markets that can support a theatrical release, they're getting it. And these are happening in conjunction, but they're actually not competing with each other. So you're asking yeah, I don't, people to like broaden the way they think about this. Yeah, because I don't think it's like that big of a stretch to say that like, you know, some of the people that are going to buy in early to these, you know, blind buy these home video products, like that they might also be, you know, enticed to watch it in theaters or write about it. Yeah. Like the most the people that have been the most supportive online for us have all already seen the movie, you know, they caught it in festivals. They caught it at, you know, like these one-off like virtual screenings mm -hmm. and yet they're still helping us support, like they're still helping support our theatrical run. And I love that because that's exactly what I was like, the reaction I was hoping for from like, you know, these people that otherwise wouldn't have a chance to talk about, you yeah. know, like these movies in that way or. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Jason, I, I could, uh, I'm really enjoying this conversation. I could talk to you all day. Uh, I know we requested a certain amount of time from you. Um, uh, I, you know, would you be open to um, maybe, you know, after the release is out or maybe in a year, if you got a couple of releases under your belt, would you be open to kind of coming back and, and seeing how it's going and just doing a check-in? Yeah, yeah. I can answer like another one or two if you got, but yeah, no, I'd definitely be down. This is fun. Super fun. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest question I think that I'm curious about personally is you mentioned that you have a little bit of an obsessive personality. So do I. That's why I, I collect. That's the one of the ways that I 
um, I, I get to tap into that. Do you, are you a collector as well? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to fucking, this is like half of my collection from like when I was in high school. Uh-huh. And then I have like the rest of it in New York at my girlfriend's place. Nice. It's like taking up space right now. Yeah, um, so I know, move right now. I know you don't have yeah. any time because you're, you're only sleeping four hours a day after this, after you get through the thick of it and you do have some time on your hands, you do have a chance to relax. Uh, I guess, well, I guess you already mentioned this. Your go-to is sci-fi when you want to relax. Is that it? Is that what you do to relax? Oh yeah, man. I, I smoke a fuck ton of pot and I watch sci-fi movies. Um, That's great. <laughs> what, what's a movie that you love that you have to defend? Cause most people don't, don't like it. And, and oh my God. There's so many of these. Let me think. Let me think. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we got like the Resident Evil ones. I'm always like in that corner. I think one of the best movies, this isn't sci-fi, but I think one of the best movies that's ever come out like in my lifespan is fucking Tony Scott's Unstoppable, dude. All right, like, okay. That is a fucking goat movie. Like that movie understands time, it understands pacing, and it has this like subtext of like of, like pain, right? Of like this deep like suppressed pain. And that shit gets me, man. Um, I'll have to watch it. I'll, I'll put that on my watch list tonight. Oh, I think uh, I've been watching like the Universal Soldier movies recently. Uh-huh. I think the John Hyam ones are really good, man. I think those are special. Um, think, it's awesome. Yeah. And then um, the ones I always go back to. Oh, one that I remember defending a lot, like last, fuck, it was like two years ago now. That was the year where I was like still, I was still working as a critic in 2019. And I remember that was the year where I was like, fuck it. You know, I'm just going to talk about um. The movies that I like, no matter how they make me look. And so I remember in my top 10 list for the film stage, uh-huh. I put like Gemini Man and like Alita in like the top four or something. Okay. Okay. And I was like, yeah, these are just great fucking movies that like use technology in different ways. And uh-huh. they're weird and they're alienating. And I think that's the point. Okay. And that one I remember like had a lot of people like, yeah, judging. Oh, I once tried to do a presentation. I once tried to present an academic paper I'd written on Ready Player One at like a conference <laughs> and they had accepted it and then they were like, never mind. Uh, I hate that though, man. Like there is, so if, if you take about like these movies that have been like watered down or made for the masses or whatever, there's still people with passion that are in that, right? And I think if you look at like movie is not one thing, but like a kind of a sum of like all a bunch of individual parts. There are still individual parts within any film that are worth kind of calling out, right? And worth enjoying. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sad that people can't see that. I, I told, so this is a weird example, but I'm just with my four-year-old, I'm going through the Gamada movies. Oh, are those the weird, like the fifties, like Japanese ones? Yeah, so it's like the kind of the, kind of like the ones that are uh, made right after Godzilla was so successful. So they tried to think of like another monster movie to create. So uh, I, I take it you haven't seen them yet. Is that right? I haven't. Is that the okay. one with the with the monsters like a terracotta like cute? Oh wait, no, that's not it. No, right. he's a turtle. He's a, he's a turtle, oh, and he yeah. has okay. tusks, and he breathes fire, and he spins around like a top, right? But in the second one, it's, he's wild. Right? But in the second movie, that's how far I'm in, in the series. The, dra- the, the, the bad guy, I guess, is this guy called Barugan, and he shoots rainbows out of the back of his spine, and the rainbows blow up tanks and, like, destroy cities. And his That's tongue, it, it's like this extremely phallic image of, like, this tongue, like, shooting out of his mouth and spewing ice, and it freezes cities and stuff. And I'm like, this is insane. I love this. <laughs> like, this is amazing. Yeah. Anyway. It's like the amount of, like, stuff you could get away with. <laughs> right? How does your kid like it? Uh, he doesn't fully understand like that that's a phallic thing or whatever he's for, but like he just loves it. He's just like, wow, that lizard like shoots ice. That's awesome. But 
Um, oh man, I would be really curious. Um, have you seen Labyrinth yet? No, I'm, I'm I, honestly, I'm waiting for the release. I, I, I can't wait to see it though. Yeah, I'm like, part of me wants to ask you to like, like, let, like expose your kid to that shit. Cause that's like a movie that I feel like was made for like, you know, children. But I'm like a little bit upset about this. Like um, some of our screenings are like, since we're unrated, um, some of the theaters have put like age caps or like um, oh, interesting. the way it's described is like, yeah, 18 plus because there's some weird like political uh, imagery going on. But I think like overall, it is a movie that would kind of appeal to children. And I remember thinking like, you know, it's kind of like talking, uh, the narrator is kind of like speaking to the younger generations, you know? And I love the opening scene so much, like one of the, uh, of everyone piling into the movie theater. There's like this one like cutaway shot where um, a kid goes like, oh, are we watching anime? And the dad's like, no, we're watching film. <laughs> oh, wow, nice, 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 nice. <laughs> um, yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll, I mean, I'll watch it with him. If that, that's fine, I'll tell you how he reacts. Um, yeah. Well, maybe I don't know if it's a good. I I think it is, but I'm I'll watch it first. I, I'll watch it first yeah. and make sure, and then I'll tell you. I'll see if you watch it. But look, man, all all the best on getting through these production delays. Can't wait to champion you on. Can't wait till the second one goes up for pre-order. You'll have a day one pre-order from me, um, and uh, and this will get pushed on on Reddit. So the boutique Blu-ray community is gonna gonna know we spoke and uh, and and hopefully help you sell out. We're gonna have some good stories to tell here from Labyrinth. So thanks so much for making some time. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, and yeah, theatrical release next week. Um, Plan 15 theaters. Info on the website. Check it out. I'm going to wrap that. Um, and yeah, Perfect. thank you so much, Chris. Yeah, thank you, man. I look forward to talking to you soon. All right, and welcome back. Now we're going to be talking about uh, Nightmare Alley, not the Guillermo del Toro one that's coming out later this month, but the 1947 by Edmund Galding which is about Stanton Carlisle joined the Cine Carnival working with Mademoiselle Zena and her alcoholic husband, Pete. Um, so I will hear from Chris. What do you think? It's not interesting if I'm on mute. Sorry about that. I don't know how that happened. Um, so, okay, by They Shoot Pictures that uh, puts us at 2,500. Too low. Uh, which to me, feels way too low. Yeah. What, what was the figure? Sorry, I, I just missed it. 2,500. Yeah, that's low. That's that's definitely low. This this should be like top 1,500 at least. Yeah, that's, I would have liked to see it there. Um, it's got, especially when you start looking at the movies that are kind of in that 2,500 range, um, a mold of ours, Time Me Up, Time Me Down is up there. True stories from David Byrne. Shut your poor mouth about Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah, like it's, I don't know, whatever. It's uh, knocked up from Judd Apatow's right next to it. Um, so, it, yeah, random. I think this is, yeah, super random. Um, uh, okay, I'll, I'll so I, I love this movie um, a lot. I think it was... We were talking, I was thinking a little bit about a conversation when we were trying to unpack the, the couple in La Delante and we were talking about like, the point is that it wasn't a good relationship. Like not all relationships are good, you know, that's okay. Like this was a depiction of an imperfect romance kind of. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, I thought about that when I was watching Nightmare Alley because, you know, this is a brilliant depiction of, of a guy that just 
falls apart. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't know. I guess I should ask y'all. How do we want to talk about this movie without bringing in spoilers? Or what level? Where do we want to say it's spoiler yeah. versus not spoiler? Yeah, I think any. Well, this could be going into spoiler territory as it is. Uh, I think anything that happens in like the final forty-five minutes, we'll leave, and then we'll do a. We'll, we'll talk about that a little later. We'll do a big spoiler warning. So okay. let's let's talk about you know how he gets into the situation before where the main plot kicks in. I don't know. If, I don't know which part was my favorite. I love the first part. Watching this guy rise up, I, it reminded me of a sort of an artistic or an art house version of what's that one called? Now you can now you see me. The, the yeah, the, yeah. Jesse Jesse Eisenberg. Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Some something like like that type of film. Uh, there was even one with uh, oh shoot the professional no not the professional that's different anyways there's been a few of these films made over the last 20 years that have to do with either a mentalist or magicians or you know like people that kind of can manipulate an audience and I think this was up there with the best of any of them that the first half of this movie is is I think quite brilliant how he how he rises up what, what did y'all think I really like this movie a lot. I actually posted it as my number two of what we've watched in film club. So I was quite a big fan of it. Um, I like the way it really, it's really kind of telling two different stories at once in a lot of ways. Like while it doesn't use flashbacks in a lot of ways without going too far into spoilers, we get a lot of hints of what's going on with, um, Zena is her name Zena is that how you say it yeah yeah Yeah. and her husband Pete and we do get answers to that in a very indirect way which I think is like probably my favorite aspect of the film is how they kind Mm -hmm. of explore that indirectly um and I also just uh I really like the main character I think his name was like what uh, something power the actor yeah Tyrone Power who's a super interesting guy he's he's actually a a dynasty is kind of like a Barrymore style actor where it's like a complete acting dynasty from vaudeville. Um, yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to hijack your point. No, you're good. Yeah. I, was very inter- I did not know. I did not realize that, but um, yeah. he was great. He really, I, I think the, I, I won't say the film like lives or dies on his shoulders, but he has the ability to elevate it. And I think he really did elevate it a lot. Yeah, he was, he was my favorite part of the film as well. Um, I liked it. I don't think I liked it as much as you guys. Uh, it's sitting pretty at like 30, 31 on my film club ranking. Um, but that's still good. I, I like pretty much all the top 50. Um, so 31 is not too bad. Uh, but yeah, I liked it. You know, you guys obviously know I'm a big noir guy. This is definitely the sort of oddest noir I've ever seen. Not just in terms of like the plot is obviously super different than what you would normally see, but even just how it's like shot and stuff. There's no, there's no like you know, smoky rooms and dark alleyways and lots of shadow play like you'd see in a lot of the more, the more maybe, you know, just more straight-laced, crimey noirs. This is definitely something a little different, um, but it has that cynicism, that sort of nihilistic, mm-hmm. fatalistic tone that sort of drives true film noirs. This film definitely has that in spades as well. It's it's, it's a really dark film, uh, which is really, really sort of adds to its atmosphere. Uh, but yeah, I agree. Tyrone Power was was great. His eyes, especially, he just had these these sort of like piercing eyes that just went right through you. Um, I thought he was fantastic. 
Um, I think there's a cool connection with him too, because like at the beginning of the film, we see like, you know, all the stuff he's doing is pretty harmless. It's parlor tricks. People kind of go to the carnival knowing like, God, this isn't real. And then we're slowly watching him do these things, which to him is no different, but it just kind of shows that despicable nature. And he plays that like so well. well. Yeah. Like his, his sort of turn, which I suppose we'll get more into when we get into spoiler territory, but you know, his progression as a character was like still super, sorry, supernatural is probably the wrong term. It was very natural. (laughs) I didn't want to to cause confusion. We're talking about a film about fake psychics. I didn't want to cause confusion by saying supernatural. It was very natural, his turn and, you know, his sort of downward spiral that he took. There there wasn't a lot of humming and hawing or, you know, self-reflection. It was all just very, yeah, okay, let's do this. Let's try this. Let's try this. This is the next step, you know? Yeah. 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 So we have... Do oh, sorry. sorry. Well, he has two strong women in his life, right? So as he's kind of leaving the, well, three, I guess. Three, uh, yeah, three. He has Joan Blondell, and then as he leaves the circus or the carnival, it's Colleen Gray playing Molly, mm-hmm. right? Who kind of follows him, and starts to build this empire with him. Once once he sees himself as somebody who's bigger than the carnival, more important yeah. than the carnival, he's gonna go make a fortune. And then he runs into my favorite character, which is Helen Wa- Helen Walker, yeah. right? As Lily, the psychi- psychologist, psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, I think not only the way that her character is used, which we'll, I'm sure we'll get into, but just the presence she has on screen and the confidence that she plays against him fr- from the very first scene, I, I just was hooked. Every time they were together in the room, I was completely hooked. I could have seen... Two hours of just them. Yeah. Well, it doesn't... Pretty... Oh, sorry, sorry. You go ahead, Adam. No, no, no. You, you go ahead. You go ahead. I, I was just going to note that, you know, kind of the thing that makes all, the use of all three of the women really interesting is that power dynamic. You know, you have, yeah. you have Zena who, you know, has, I, I don't want to say power over him, but in a sense, yeah, she understands what's going on. She teaches him the ropes. And then, you know, he moves on to Molly who he has, serious power dynamic over you know he's able to manipulate her pretty well um and that allows him to i guess spread his wings even a little bit more and then you get into uh is her name rita or miss ritter uh yeah lilith ritter yeah yeah Yeah, and i mean you know that is like chris was talking about it's his equal or at least how he you know we won't go too far into that. Actually, I'm going to stop saying anything before I go too far with that. But well, look, I think this is the part because really we don't really get much interest in discussion on the, the whole film without getting into spoiler territory. So look, if you haven't seen Nightmare Alley or you're planning on going to see the new one, maybe sort of skip ahead now. I'll put some timestamps into the episode description as to when you can come back in because it's really hard to discuss this film without getting into spoiler territory. Um, so c- yeah. continue with your point, Zach, knowing that you can now talk freely about everything. Okay, and I was just going to, you know, because the, the question really is with um, Lily is whether or not it is someone who holds equal power to him or is it a perception of himself? Because that's kind of where the end of the film is alluding to. Uh, if I would love to hear if, what you guys kind of perceive their last scene together. I don't know if it's, if it's supposed to be straightforward or not. Um, but it, it's this idea that maybe she's the equal because it's just him or how he perceives himself. 
or if it really is someone who's got one over on him. Yeah, like I think I think she plays him. She plays him really well. Like it's like you said, it's it's a super interesting dynamic that he has with all three women in the film. There isn't really what like with a film noir, you usually have one one set femme fatale. You know, she's either the love interest or she sort of plays with the main character and she then turns on him. You know, like Barbara Barbara Stanwyck in mm-hmm. in um in Double Indemnity. You know, like there's mm-hmm. always there's always that one femme fatale. Whereas this film doesn't really have it doesn't have any, but it has like all three split across three women. So like, because like Lily, she never like she plays partner with him, but it, it's clear that she's a villain the whole way through. Because you know they're going to be they're, they're scamming people, and um, mm-hmm. you know it's not it's not as if you know they're trying to be pals or anything like that. They they pretty much decide to scam people from from nearly at the get go, and um, they, they decide they're going to pull off this sort of crime together. And then obviously she she completely outsmarts him by by you know making him think he's going is starting to go crazy and, and everything like that and she she completely gets one over on him um but then obviously you have other characters like Joan Blondell's character who I thought was great um because Joan Blondell is great I suppose um Zena you know like I said he, she has no power over him in a in a physical sense or she doesn't hold anything over him like the the psychologist does but you know she's the one who teaches him everything he knows he's only in the position because of her teachings and then obviously Molly is interesting in that degree as well because she is more so like how a femme fatale character starts, you know, on his side working with him, you know, you know, wanting him to succeed. If like if I thought anyone was going to turn, if this was if this was a normal film noir, Molly would have been, you know, there would be no Lilith character. Molly would be the one who would be turning on. Um, mm. So it's an interesting dynamic the way they sort of split the femme fatale across almost three characters. His relationship with Molly in general is really interesting because by the end, it's hard to really fully read his feelings towards her because he kind of contradicts himself a lot during it. Because obviously, like at one point, he uses the I love you card when he needs it the most. Um, He needs her to stay. So he tells her, like, I'm finally going to tell you this, blah, blah, blah. And then when she kind of ruins his entire plan, he ruins, she ruins his future. She, he still wants her there, which I did not really figure was going to be in his character to do so um yeah it's interesting that he that you know obviously even like the last thing he does when he starts to go on the run towards the end of the film is just make sure that she got away safe and she wasn't going to get involved in any of the trouble or anything like that um their their dynamic is, is definitely interesting i suppose maybe he's sort of at the end of it he's just kind of he gets a good look at himself in the mirror and he realizes you know you know, the shit he's been pulling isn't right. And, you know, as a sort of last ditch attempt to make amends, he'll just try and save what he perceives as an innocent bystander to his scams, just try and get her out of the woods. But there's there's examples of entirely selfish people who also do selfless things, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's possible that he does have feelings, like it, genuine feelings for her. And that's confusing because she's not going along with him each step of the way. Like I'm thinking of, you know, is, I don't know if this is an American term or an international term. Have you, do you all, uh, do you know the term Ponzi scheme? Yeah, pyramid schemes, basically, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, a little different. Uh, no, pyramid I'm schemes. Learn something I've definitely heard. I've definitely heard the term. Um, so yeah. a Ponzi scheme. The, the simplest way to say it is, I'm going to borrow a thousand dollars from you in, with a promise of 10x return. So I'm going to give you ten thousand dollars in return. 
Okay. And then I go raise a thousand dollars from everybody else, promising them $10,000 in return. Mm -hmm. And the only way that I get the money in return is by borrowing more money. So I'm not, I'm not actually doing with it. I'm just building up this incredible wealth. And, and some people are getting their money back. And so they kind of leave with these testimonials, which then helps more people donate or give to the cause. And, you know, because I'm telling you like, well, if I give you 10 extra turn, I just want 10% back. So, you know, then I'm, I'm getting wealthy by fulfilling your 10 X return, but the whole thing falls apart the, the second that people stop giving you, it's like this never ending thing. Right. And it's, it's illegal because you're not actually doing anything with the business. So I'm not saying that he's running a Ponzi scheme. What I'm saying is there are people that build like $10 billion portfolios that are Ponzi schemes. And I just, you know, I've always been interested in this because there's a moment in time where it's harmless, relatively harmless. And there's a moment in time when your scheme gets so big that it has an entire state's reti teacher's retirement fund in it. And when the fund goes under, you have 3 million people losing their entire retirement fund. Yeah. And, and then, you know, that goes back a lot to where outsiders will sometimes blame the victims saying they were dumb enough to fall for it when it's losing the context of why they did it in the first place. Well, well no, for sure. For sure. And I guess I, you know, what I'm, what I'm wondering, uh, that that's an interesting point. And I don't know that that's, directly something that happens here in the film, but that is, that is a side effect of that, which is unfortunate. Um, but where, where I was tying it back in was to say that like these people that are running these schemes, it's easy to paint them as, as devils or as, as the lowest scum of the earth because they are knowingly now taking all these funds, right? But there's another thing that happens, which I think happens here, which is at some point the scam becomes larger than the person who's running it. And yeah, because I mean, in it. Yeah, because we see the natural progression here. You know, when they start, they're just, you know, like I said, doing doing a parlor trick. You know, how do you guess people's questions and make it seem like you're a mind reader? And that slowly turns into, is my my daughter going to be okay? And you're like, well, how do I make them convinced? Then it's like, well, here's your daughter's name. Here's where how you're lying to me, um, stuff like that. And you're, it's just a progression of how do I keep selling this parlor trick? And before you know it, you're trying to get a radio station and trying to get a bunch of money from a guy who, cause he thinks you can like reunite him with his, you know, deceased love interest from 35 years ago. So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Cause I think that's such a powerful scene because that's when, that's when he became, he made a conscious decision to do something deceptive. And that's the first time we see that, right? I think up until that point, he was having fun. And then there's a moment where everybody in his life tells him, no, that's too far. And he like pushes through it. And he's like, no, we've got to do this. We can get a tavern or not a tavern, a uh, temple and a radio station and like all these things, right? Like, and it's the first time I think where it's like in his mind, it's clear that this is too far and he pushes through it. Uh, and I, I thought that was a really powerful scene in that way. Yeah, like there's a fine line between what he does, you know, between there's a fine line here between what is the game, what is the parlor trick, you know, the, the mind reader's crap versus what's fraud, you know. Yeah. At that point, he was willing to accept a large sum of money to knowingly, you know, to knowingly um, deceive someone 
that had a lot of that had a lot of emotional investment in what they were going to be seeing. You yeah. know, when you go to a mentalist show, like these people were going to, to you know, they were, they were in the scenes, you know, in that sort of whatever it was, a bar or a cafe, whatever, whatever that sort of, you know, place where he was doing his, yeah. his, yeah, yeah. his uh, you know, his psychic tricks where people were going specifically to see him and have him do these things. Whereas, you know, what he does then with, with Molly dressing up as the, the ghost of your man's long lost love, that that is you know, taking a large sum of money that is emotionally abusing someone essentially and, and stealing from them, you know. So there's, there's a very yeah. fine line there that he has no problem crossing. Yeah, and, and it's it almost like he gets to like almost like uh, I guess another sort of term when you're talking about schemes is like sunken cost. Like he's like, well, I've already put way too much effort into this yeah. to not go through with it, to not finish this, to not just let one person tell me this isn't right. Especially when he's kind of got, you know, the devil and the angel on his shoulder where, um, you know, he's obviously got Molly who's telling him this is wrong. This is immoral. And then he's got uh, Lily who's, you know, helping him. She's the one telling him the information or he's perceiving that and he's figuring out how to get away with it. Yeah. And this is where the psychology of like a megalomaniac is so interesting, right? Because he at that moment, you see him see himself as invincible and that's when he's actually the most vulnerable. Yeah, because, I mean, at any, you know, you, you have to get to these, like, I mean, like, let's say he's at a carnival and he screws up the trick. Who cares? You know, he'll go to no. the next one. Nothing changes. No one's hurt. It's fine. He screws up this thing with, uh, what's his name? Gil? It starts with a G, but I can't think of his name. But the man who has the love interest. Yeah. I mean, if he's, one, if he screws it up, he's, you know, immoral for taking his money but there's no way he'll ever have a reputation again so he's putting that huge risk out there and on the other end he is you know if he's successful it's bad anyway like he's successful and he gets everything he wants but in all honesty based on his character that's not going to be the end of it you know there's always going to be the ambition to go further exactly i suppose it ties into um the end of the film um there's actually there's a really great line there's a great exchange um towards i think it's i think it's actually the last two lines of the film and i wrote them down as i like them so much so it's after you know after stan is completely completely gone to rock bottom alcoholic you know babbling fool maniac um, which we'll talk about in a second in terms of the cyclical nature of this film and how how amazing that was put together. But there's a great line at the end after they've seen him go on a sort of crazed run around through the carnival where he's back at. And a guy asks the new leader of the carnival, how can a guy get so low? And the guy goes, you reach too high. And that's where the film ends. So, um, you know, this that's sort of how, you know, he... He just kept going one step, one step, one step, just to try and get more money, more money, more money. Sort of, he got the dollar signs in his eyes, and suddenly it was just like a complete plummet. There, there was no gradual downfall. There was no okay, let's go back to doing the stuff in the in the cafes. It was a it was a fall from grace. Is you know yeah. the only way to really describe that the trajectory yeah. that Stan took. Um, so I really love that that sort of closing line. You know, how can a guy get so low? You reach too high, and it's, that's essentially what he did here. He could, he would have been fine just continuing to do what he was doing. He was making money. He was making people happy. He himself seemed fine, 
but you know he just got he got greedy and just kept reaching he wanted more he wanted more got more elaborate and then just fell just yeah it's a lot of very much a story of icarus sort of tale yeah for sure yeah yeah and um and i mean we kind of get a little bit of backstory of what made him you know maybe where he gets this ambition from i think they mentioned he you know he grew up in an orphanage he had no one in his life so it's almost like this idea of you know pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just never stop and it ends up you know that i guess you'd say character flaw is the end of it for him Now, there was a contentious point in a... Sorry, Chris. Go ahead. Well, I don't know if this takes us off track, but I was just thinking of this... This, I don't know if this movie would get made today because you... you know, like It's being made in like three weeks like... time, Chris. <laughs> it's coming out no, no. soon. <laughs> it's, that's a funny thing to say. You're right. It's literally coming out. <laughs> the remake is coming out. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I don't, I don't know if the message resonates, though, because you look at like... Um, uh, uh, you know, Bill Gates, or you look at uh, the guy from Amazon, Bezos. Like they, you know, they they just keep reaching, right? Elon Musk, like they just kind of keep reaching, and it works great for them. <laughs> Which I, I guess sure. you could sit there and say, you know, it's not like Jeff Bezos has a good reputation. I think one thing people might enjoy is watching a fall from grace, or watching the people on the top be knocked down. So. And also at the same time, you know, this this Stan guy, he was never at that level anyway. I'm sure for every Jeff Bezos, there's a million other guys who were getting there and then fell off. Mm. So mm. well, and I, I mean, say what you want about the businesses, but they are doing it legitimately. I mean, you know, there's no trick. I mean, like they're building a business. That's different from what Stan was doing of actively deceiving people. Oh, yeah, no, for I will sure. Say yeah. You're getting deceived on your bathroom breaks at Amazon. <laughs> Amazon, yeah. please don't sue us. Anyway, um, that's sorry. Sorry, yeah. The point I was just going to make really quick. I know we're sort of uh, going a bit long on this one because um, it just kind of ties into what we we're just talking about there about you know reaching and falling and everything like that. And it was a kind of a contentious point that I had put in my review that you had replied to, Chris. And I'm just kind of interested to hear you elaborate on. I had essentially summed this film up as a cautionary tale of the dangers of going for the American dream. Um, and maybe I wasn't clear about that in my written review. I'm not dis- discouraging people to chase their dreams. I'm not saying everyone who chases their dreams is going to end up like a crazy man in a carnival. Um, but I just think it's a cautionary tale for, you know, for being too greedy. You know, maybe once, you know, enjoy the success you have rather than, you know, maybe sort of getting them, getting the dollar signs and not thinking everything through. Um, so that's that's kind of what I meant, but I, I you you did you gave me a very interesting reply, and I'd like to sort of hear you talk about that a little bit because you come from yeah, an interesting yeah, background. Yeah. So yeah, I, it, it's just a semantics point on the tying the American dream to greed because I think I, I I completely understand why those two things would be tied together in your mind. I just know that growing up with you know, my, let's see, my dad was born in 53. So he was a, he was a, uh, you know, part of that post-war, uh, what are they called? The boomers or whatever. And like for that, that American dream was so central to that era, that generation. Right. And it kind of meant different things uh, to different people, but it, the, the central theme behind it was hope. Right. And this idea that like people coming over from a different country or, 
for people coming up from poverty, you're never more than one or two generations away from a comfortable life. It doesn't necessarily mean that everybody becomes Bezos, right? Or, you know, so along the way, now, I, that's not me saying that you're wrong in, in writing that. I, I think what happens is, it's like the whole reason communism doesn't work is because on paper, it's a great idea. But if you have a system where everybody's getting paid, no matter how hard they work, people stop working, right? I mean, I'm oversimplifying, but like, that's, that's the common critique on something like socialism or communism in, in its purest form, right? Is that there's gonna be some people that are carrying the load and some people that are not working um, because that's kind of like human nature. And I think just in the same way, one of the things that's become true from this idea of the American dream is that there are people that are going to try to achieve that dream through any means possible. In which case, I think that's the cautionary tale and that's the warning sign. And I totally agree with that side of it. Absolutely. And that's, and that's what I was more meaning about it as well. I wasn't telling people, don't go chase your dreams, people, <laughs> except where you are. <laughs> I wasn't telling people. That. Uh, yeah, it was definitely just that, like there's two sides to every coin. Uh, you know, I think yeah, you, you said, I have your, your reply up here and you said it perfectly. You know, there's a difference between being a, the wolf of Wall Street than owning a corner store. You know, yeah. there's a fine line right. there between getting your way by greed and deceiving people versus, you know, working hard and, and chasing that dream. That's that's absolutely if you know, if you're working hard, that's great. Perfect. You get to where you are because of hard work. Amazing. Kudos to you. Um, if you get there by scamming people, then I hope you get your comeuppance the same way Mr. Stan did. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think it's interesting to tie into. Uh, your recent watch, Adam, with "There Will Be Blood," because it's sort yeah, it's yeah. sort of the same story, you know. Yeah, for, yeah. Instead of you know, uh, not, you know, I, uh, I don't want to spoil "There Will Be Blood" because I don't think Chris has seen it yet. But you know, yeah, their yeah. endings are very different but very similar. I'll say that much. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, it's like I think a lot of these films, you know, about we mentioned earlier with Colonel Blimp about you know these sort of rise to power films. They usually always end up with the protagonist. If the protagonist got there you know through deceiving or crime they normally end up you know getting the shit end of the stick you know you see it with like goodfellas where he just ends up in nobody a schmuck uh you see it in obviously i know the wolf of wall street is, a, is based on real life but you know he ends up you know in prison at the end and everything like that so you usually see it with these kind of films where people sort of work their way through greed and manipulation they normally end up getting maybe not well they don't always lose everything, but they usually end up unhappy. Yeah. And, you know, I, I guess that's the predictable nature. Like one thing I was really worried about, I really didn't want Nightmare Alley to win because I'm really looking forward to Guillermo del Toro's version. So I was like, ah, it's going to spoil the whole thing for me. But it does make a great point that it's like this movie really can't end another way. Yeah. Right. No, it was teed up perfectly from the very beginning. This, you know, and I loved I, as soon as I started realizing where it was going, I loved it because you know this idea of, of of essentially him stuck in the cycle back to square one. Um, you know, obviously the film starts with with Zena and her alcoholic husband, uh, that used to do, you know, mentalist tricks back in the day until he, the husband became an alcoholic, and now it just ends up the same thing except he's with molly and she's looking after him at the carnival while he's the hopeless alcoholic and he's probably going to go again it's it's a really cool way they did it with this whole cyclical nature and how it ties back to you know you know sort of prophesized by xena and, and her husband 
I had this like kind of dumb thought, but at first second I thought it was going to go in this direction where we see like at the beginning of the film, they're like chasing this guy that they're calling a geek or whatever. And um, so at the end of the film, when they were doing the same thing with Stan, I was like, oh, is this going to be like a Shutter Island type of ending where the whole time (laughs) (laughs) the replay of this? I don't think they would have had the balls to do that. Like this film was <laughs> this film was ballsy enough as it, as it is for this era. I don't think they would have had that much balls to do that. <laughs> but I did actually want to bring up, uh, and I, I I won't bring up too much. But one aspect I really thought was interesting about this is the use of supernatural, uh, the actual word supernatural, not the confusing thing Adam was going to say. Um, but this idea that you know almost everything we see is you know explainable. They're using a code. They're doing this but the one thing that is never given an explanation is the tarot cards and the sense of it seems like the one truth in this movie is the tarot cards are always right and you know they're supposed to be the same sort of parlor trick but in the film they're given almost like this supernatural precedence in a sort yeah there is that vague supernaturalism around it and I'm sorry, this, probably, this might sound like an absolutely stupid question, but it confused me and I don't recall ever getting an answer or at least I didn't, don't remember seeing an answer. But when, when Stan first, you know, is doing, you know, doing the stuff and, and Lily's there in the crowd and she lies on the card, how does he know she was lying? I, do, I think that is just intuition. Like, I think... okay. I, that that's kind of how I read it because I thought it was implying that maybe he maybe he did have a little bit there, you know, but but then, never so much so to explicitly say it, you know, just kind of hint that maybe he has more power than he's letting on. And that could very well be it. I think I, I think that's so vague, but it's almost like I, I kind of felt like the like film is going, going to, you know, he's he's a street kid. He's he's learned what's legitimate, how to read people, and. Hmm. He uses that to, you know, and it may have been the way she phrased the question because she phrases it in a very cold way. Like, I can't remember exactly how she words the question, but I do remember it being a very cold way to ask about if your sick mother is going to make it. Yeah, it was something along those lines. Okay. If this, Sorry, was, if this was a vinegar syndrome film, he would have the touch and he would have just a light, <laughs> light version of the touch. And then throughout the 90 minutes, he would he would finally unlock his superpower and have a moment of like where he like explodes into seeing like every voice in the world or something. And um, got the shine, the shine. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah it's, I don't know that that's ever I think that's left a little bit ambiguous What is my takeaway on that. Like, I kind of like the way you said it, Zach. I think he's a street kid and he just kind of, you know, was has, has this like deep intuition from having to survive for so long. But He's, you know, we never see an example of him being wrong either. Right. And that's what I was waiting on that saying. I was like, oh, here's, here we go. This is like, this is going to be the turning moment for him. And it was, yeah. but not in the way I thought it was going to be. Right. So if, if we never see him wrong, then maybe there's something else that they're kind of touching on. But yeah, yeah. it does have ambiguity, ambiguous moments for it as well. You know, that part where he's confronting Lily and you know he can hear the police sirens and she's like oh there is no police police sirens you know is she gaslighting him is he actually imagining it it's it's it's, again it's left ambiguous yeah and I was like when that was coming that's why I was wondering if it was like maybe I didn't read the scene right but I was like that's not supposed like we're not supposed to exactly know the answer to that right like yeah I don't think so either yeah I think it's left ambiguous which is really cool for a film in this era to do You, you don't see that a lot 
that's what yeah. I was saying at the very start. You know, this is not a a bog standard film noir. It's 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 very interesting. It does a lot of things. Uh, it's a ballsy film, as I said a few minutes ago. It's a, it's a ballsy film, and I I have a lot of appreciation for it. Even if I didn't love it as much as you guys, I do have a lot of appreciation for what it does. Cool. So we're wrapping up the end of the podcast, uh, which is always, uh, well, I say as always, we've been kind of skipping it a couple of couple of recent weeks, but uh, we're going to do any other business just where we talk about something we've seen recently that we liked and we want to give a shout out to. It doesn't have to be on the Criterion channel. doesn't even have to be any good. just something that you liked that you think you want to give a quick shout out to. Uh, I always go first in this segment and I'm not going to go first this time. Uh, Zach, what, what do you got for us? Okay, so... We are in December, so it is time for those Christmas movies to come out. Um, most of mine are horror. I know that's a shock to everyone here. <laughs> um, you know, what I really want to talk about, and I think it's one that got a lot of hate when it released, and it was because it was a remake of a classic. Um, of course, in 1974, Bob Clark created Black Christmas and became, you know, the reason that slasher movies exist, made Halloween, gave Halloween what it was, and, you know, went from there uh, and got a lot of appreciation later. So in 2006, um, Dimension Films decided to make a remake um, that was a much more trashy and 2000s slasher for Black Christmas, which a lot of people hated. And I absolutely love that movie a lot. Um, it, it is absolutely overly gory. It's overly trashy. It's everything that Bob Clark's isn't. Um, you know, 74s is a very classy sort of film in its own way you know it's a 70s slasher um this one you know you have eyes getting jammed down you have it but i think that's what i like about it like you know when you talk about remakes you know i can sit there and bring up rob zombies halloween remake and i'm like i don't like the trashy nature of it because i think where black christmas succeeded the year before was that it committed to it Rob Zombies, I think where it failed was this idea that he wants to make this trashy thing, but then he spends the second half of the movie just doing a one-for-one remake of John Carpenter's with slightly more trash to it. I like the commitment in the 2006 one because it feels like a completely different experience. I don't spend my time comparing them, which is really nice. It's just taking the same basic premise and just doing its own thing with it, similar characters, but you know, it's its own trashy little thing that i enjoy watching every year it's actually pretty well shot i just finished watching it earlier today um really good colors like 2000s horror was filmed with this really gray and dirty look and this one has like these christmas lights that really add to the cinematography and add to the colors of the film and i don't know i just like it and i don't i feel like i'm the only person i found that does but i figured i'd give it a shout out for this type of season if somebody wanted to give it a chance and rewatch it what do you think of uh uh, two two questions for you. What did you think of Nispel's Marcus Nispel's Friday the Thirteenth? I like it. I mean, it's it's. I, I like both of his remakes. He did a Texas Chainsaw Massacre as well. Yeah. And you know, Friday Thirteenth, he basically just took the highlight reel of the first four films and made his own thing. And I was like, you know, it has the best Jason. Sorry, Kane Hodder, but Derek Mears is awesome as Jason and. I mean, you know, it's kind of a fast version of Friday without all the boring stuff in it. Well, he takes the first four movies and basically makes them into like a five minute or 10 minute sequence before the credits. Right. And then he go and makes like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but with Jason or something like Jason is terrifying in the in the remake. 
Yeah, like he's he's cruel. They made him like a survivalist. I mean, most of the time, a lot of Jason kills are pretty quick and to the point. Like, you know, we're just here to see what gnarly instrument he uses. But this one, I mean, he throws a girl over like a, fi- a fire while she's in a sleeping bag. I mean, that's that's pretty hardcore. And that's yeah. really cruel and mean spirited. Um, yeah. But I like it. Um, and then Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. Oh, I love Snyder's. And that, that's really what it of comes to. Of course he was going to say yeah. good things about yeah, Snyder yeah, film. I was going to like Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. I do not think it's better than Romero's. I will point that out. But if you're going to remake Romero, I mean, do it this way. You know, it, the, the, you know, 78 Dawn of the Dead is, you know, slow paced. It's very character focused. It's you have slow moving zombies. You have all that other stuff. Snyder basically peels that back and says, this is an action horror movie. We're going to give you the fun and we're going to lose the, you know, we're, we're focused on the cool factor. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to appreciate a remake that does that because, you know, if you're going to do it, do it your own way. Yeah. Totally agree. So one thing I'll say about uh, Black Christmas, uh, I haven't seen the original, but I have seen the one you're referring to. And I was purposely avoiding the original because I assumed it was as sleazy and trashy as the not remake which has an abhorrent scene featuring a mother and child that i will not not talk about because it yeah, is it's, it, it's it's black christmas in alabama i mean straight it is up it's abhorrent <laughs> it is i remember i remember I, I watched that when i was maybe i don't know 14 15 16 i can't remember exactly what age i was when it came out but it was only pretty new out when i saw it and yeah it was it was horrific um, now i'm glad that there, no, the original is good so i'll probably watch that one yeah i will tell you and this is John Carpenter originally was interested in making a Black Christmas sequel. And Bob Clark told him not to do it and use a lot of his ideas for his own thing, which he would use in Halloween. Halloween is so based off of Black Christmas, uh, specifically, in like tone. Now, I will say Carpenter, I think, is a more talented director. Obviously, I'll think that. But Bob Clark's classic, Black Christmas, is great. Of course, 10 years later, he would do a Christmas story. So, you know, I'm sure you may have seen that one, at least. Have you seen that one? Don't shoot your eye out. Okay, maybe that's a big American thing. I don't know what we're calling it, but yeah, I'll watch. I'll definitely watch the original Black Christmas because I was always put off by my horrible memories of the remake. <laughs> so there we go. Um, it has nothing about a, fa- a mother and son relationship. In okay, that's nice. No, none yeah. of that is in that is all you know, made of remake. I could slightly palette it if they if they didn't show it so graphically. You know, <laughs> if it was implied, I could have palleted it, but to actually show it in scenes, I was like, no. There's no need. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, I'll, I'll jump in next if Chris doesn't mind. Um, so I sat down about a week and a half, two weeks ago, maybe, maybe even a little bit longer. Uh, I was playing football manager on my Mac in front of the TV, like I do most evenings these days. Um, uh, my girlfriend said, I'm going to watch a film. I thought, Kudos to you. I'm gonna just gonna sit here and play my game. You work away. She normally put on some rom com or, you know, some Netflixy kind of film, Christmas Prince, whatever that shit. You know that kind of that kind of film. And she said, "Oh, look what I have here. It's the Princess Diana biopic." And I thought, "Oh, what do you fucking do? A biopic about a royal? This is this is gonna be terrible. This film is fucking nuts. This is like, this is I can't even call it a biopic. It's this film." is as close to The Shining as you will ever get outside of The Shining. It is just crazy good. Uh, it's directed by a dude called Pablo Lorraine, uh, 
if you haven't heard of the film, Kristen Stewart's in it. It literally only just came out um, just a couple of months ago, I think back in September. And it's, it's just absolutely nuts. It's just full of tense atmosphere, Lynchian almost atmosphere, a yeah. crazy, creepy score from Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead, whose scores I always love. And I'm a huge Radiohead fan. So that's always a plus for me. Um, but yeah, oh my, it was honestly, it's like, it's so Kubrickian and how it's shot. Uh, Kirsten Stewart does an amazing job as as Diana but like this is not a biopic in any way it literally just takes place over three days as she slowly loses her marbles and loses her sort of sense of identity and reality and it's it's just it is it is it's just something I did not expect in my wildest dreams when my girlfriend sat down and said I'm going to watch a biopic on Princess Diana she hated it she thought it was she thought, <laughs> she, thought it fucked, she hated it so much she was like she got I got, I slowly got into it. I was like, these opening credits are cool. It's like the shining, you know, with the sort of helicopter shots. And this is, this is cool opening credits, but I was still kind of playing my game and slowly but surely I was turned and fully focused on the TV and she was more and more engaged with her phone. <laughs> I could tell that she, yeah, yeah. she, she absolutely hated it, but I loved it. I thought it was, I thought it was incredible. It, honestly, it's, I think it's probably the best like 2021 film I've seen this year. I haven't like, I admittedly have not seen a lot of new films this year, um, but th- this is probably the best one. It's, it's crazy good. And it's not even that long. It's like about less than two hours. If, if you have a like chance three to hours, it, Adam be here. Like this is the worst movie I've seen this year. <laughs> I no, honestly, it. <laughs> honestly, like, you know, like, you know, it's different when like it's described not the way on IMDb. It's always like blank as a 2001 blank on the list of genres. So this is described as a historical fiction psychological drama. That's mm-hmm. how I, like Wikipedia describes it. It's an it's a fucking nuts film. If you get a chance to watch it, watch Spencer. It is just I don't know if I said the name of the film. It's called Spencer. You've it's it's it was heavily marketed, yeah. heavily mismarketed. I'm sure a lot of people walked out of the theater going, "What the fuck did we just watch?" Because <laughs> uh, honestly, it's like a nightmare. It's amazing. I love it. You know, I'm, I've been really wanting to see it. Uh, I didn't get, to, I had to go to like an hour and a half out to an art house theater to see stuff like that. So I didn't get a chance to. Really? Right I'm now, not surprised. It's so heavily marketed here in Ireland. Like, like, no, maybe it's just because obviously, you know, we're so close to England. A lot of, a lot of our young Irish people are sort of interested in, especially Diana, they're kind of interested in her, you know, from a, you know, from a celebrity standpoint. So it was very heavily marketed here, which is why I assumed it was just a general run of the mill biopic that was going to bore me to tears. Uh, and not the Kubrickian nightmare that it actually is. Yeah, and I'm I'm hoping to get to see it soon because I have been on like the Kristen Stewart train for like five years, and I'm hoping it'll kind of get like Robert Pattinson guy because I was like, yeah, I'm kind of tired of the uh, Twilight comments at this point. I was like, how many? That was like a decade ago now. And they're kind of getting it, a little honestly. Old. I see this all the time as well. The only people who make those comments are people who've never watched their films after Twilight. You know, I, I, you know, especially like when Pattinson was made Batman, I saw like a lot of people that I was sort of in high school with, secondary school, as we call it here. I'm not gonna, I'm not putting myself in your standards. People I went to secondary school with going, Oh, the sparkly vampire is gonna be Batman. This is fucking stupid. And I'm like, have you ever seen any other Robert Pattinson film? Have you ever actually even seen Twilight? Probably not. No. <laughs> yeah, like she gets a lot of hate for like playing Bella. And I was like, I I will disclose I have read the Twilight books. Same. Because my, my my girlfriend was like, when oh well, not my girlfriend, I, um I, my girlfriend and my sister at the time were like, you can't make fun of it unless you've read it. And I'm like, okay, I will be that petty and I will read them. And uh, they're not good. 
they're not no. they're, they're not good. Um, but yeah. Kristen Stewart <laughs> played Bella exactly as she's portrayed in the book. Yeah, that's not her fault that this character sucks. She did her best with the shit she was given. <laughs> exactly, and I mean, hell, if I was you know their age. And I was given this like multi-million dollar project. I was like, fuck yeah, dude, I'll do it. We talked about this in the yeah. last podcast. <laughs> yeah, make your like... make your fucking money, then go do what you want. That's what they've been doing now for years. They Kristen Stewart won the French equivalent of a fucking Oscar. Yeah, you for know? Uh, cla- uh, Saint- Clouds of Silver Saint- Maria. Yeah, that's it. And then um, you know, and then she did Personal Shopper, which is fantastic. Yeah. I haven't seen Clouds yet, but I've seen Personal Shopper, and that one's awesome. You know, they, they, they made the right decision. They got all their money young. They're probably still getting royalties to this day. They'll probably get them exactly. for the rest of their life. And now they can just have the freedom to make whatever the fuck they want forever. Have you? It, it's called fuck you money for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they have a single regret. I really, even with all the comments they get, I, was, I don't think they have a regret about it. I sure wouldn't. Work yeah. smart, kids. Sell out. And then you can do whatever you want afterwards. It's great. Yeah, yeah that, honestly, that's the advantage. Sell out first because then nobody yeah. can tell you a sell out later. Precisely. If you sell out first and then you like build everything up for the next 10, 20 years, yeah, people will still remember you or, you know, in that big role. But people will then also go, oh, yeah, but he's actually pretty good. It turned out he's actually really good rather than, you know, being in art house shit for 20 years and then selling out. Then you're just going to be a sellout. But if you do it the other way around, people are suddenly like, oh, but actually it turns out he's actually a really good actor and he was just making money. That's cool. Kudos to him. <laughs> like, I just can't wait until Daniel Day-Lewis shows up in, um, what are the Fast and Furious 10? <laughs> I would uh, I would love it. I would absolutely, I would, I would actually go see a Fast and Furious movie in theaters. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> see Daniel Day-Lewis rock up and just go, family <laughs> it's like vin it's like vin diesel's father it's like oh shit it's daniel day <laughs> universal please um, get him out of retirement yeah throw yeah, money at him um so i'll i'll go i'm just gonna quickly run through the 312 movies that i saw in in a ranking order you got 15 minutes go um, no, I want to highlight. So I saw, um, I, I felt like I was kind of seeing a lot of, you know, famous sort of important movies back to back, and I needed a genre bend bender. So I've been seeing a fair amount of genre films. Uh, the, there's a movie from the mid '90s called The Grave. Have one of y'all seen that? I don't think so. I don't think I have. It's basically just like a ghost story. It's a simple movie. Uh, I loved it. It's just a, yeah, it's like a campfire story. Not not a ghost story, I guess, but it's just like one of those campfire kind of like tales about people that try to rob a grave and, and, and then somebody gets the idea to go try it for themselves and chaos ensues. It's great. It's a simple story. Exactly what I want out of a genre film. Few twists, nothing crazy. Then I, then I saw Angel. Have you all seen that, the 1983 Angel? I have not. I'm adding all these to my list, though. No, from me, dog. Angel's crazy. Like, the actress looks 12. It turns out she's 25 when she made the movie. Um, But she plays a 15-year-old who goes to a private school in the day, and she's a straight-A student. And at night, she's she's a prostitute. And... I guess that was legal at 15 and in the 80s. I don't know the, how the, the, the laws have changed over the years, but they don't mention anything about her being too young. 
Uh, in fact, there's this really awkward line where someone who, who purchased her services for the night says, uh, you better tell me you're 14 or I'm going to send you back for being too old. <laughs> 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 Which I shouldn't laugh at. I was like, what the hell is going on? Um, it doesn't show her. Is that true? I don't think she's naked in the movie. It, it has nudity in it, but it's not. It's, it's more just a, it's, it's this crazy movie where her parents aren't around. And so she's kind of taken under like people from the street kind of take her under their wings. And so her surrogate mother is a trans woman who's dressed in full drag and or dressed in women's clothing and is this real loud kind of vivacious character. And her surrogate father is this artist kind of building manager who lives downstairs. Uh, and it's her adventures like, yeah, it's a weird dark film with like comedy in it in unexpected places. It's, it's good. Like I, I was not expecting to like it, but Vinegar Syndrome put it out. So I thought I would give it a shot and it's got way more depth to it than I thought it would. Well, I noticed um, like all the people I follow on Letterboxd who've seen it, which you haven't put yours on there yet. I assume that's one of your four. Um, all of them have given it high stars. So I was like, okay, must be my sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Ticks is we talked about a little bit, uh, I can't remember if it was for the Patreon part, it might've been, um, but it has Carlton from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air right smack in the middle of his career in 1993, like when he was Carlton playing this this uh, horror movie where he gets infected by these these kind of large ticks and it's hilarious and his Seth, young Seth Green um, and it's just a very over the top, wonderful body kind of creature horror film. So it was good. I've been I'm, I've been loving these genre uh, this genre bender that I've been on. I don't think I'll be adding any of those when I watch this, Crystal. Uh, <laughs> I, I won't I won't lie to you. I, I added two of them. If that makes you feel any better, <laughs> it really shows yeah, how diverse of a podcast we are. <laughs> <laughs> Come to They yep. Live by Film for your criterion and your shit. I, I think uh, I think Chris plays a good uh, middle in between me and you, Adam. Yeah. Forget <laughs> <advocate> almost. <laughs> yep, I need I need both. I need both in my life. <laughs> hey, look, the way you guys treat your shitty, schlocky horror films was how I treat my Marvel films, I suppose. So we all have our vices. There you go. Have you all seen? There's a funny meme where it's this picture of um, some some cartoon character. I can't remember which one with the fridge open, shoveling in a slice of cake. And on the top, it says art house people when no one's looking. And then over the cake, it says blockbusters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good meme. That's very. Yeah. Well, it, it has some truth to it because you'll always have those people who watch a lot. Like most, are they, they, you'll always talk only about art house stuff. But as soon as you start bringing up stuff, they have an opinion on it because they have seen it. Exactly. Like, they'll watch it anyway. <laughs> exactly. That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. You can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care. <laughs>